Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday. Oh, my gosh. Such a week, right? But it led me to ask this question, what is accountability? What is it? I looked it up. Webster conveniently defines it for us as an obligation or willingness to accept responsibility or to account for one's actions. I think that definition misses an important point, one that is happily becoming clearer with each passing week. Not that any of our friends, the election deniers, are going to hold themselves accountable for anything. We know, for example, that the loser in the Arizona governor's race, a former TV anchor now suing Maricopa County to keep herself in the public eye, she is not willing to own up to her loss. And the chaos she causes by pretending some outrage and rushing to court keeps her grift alive for a bit longer. But maybe when she's alone at a bar, stirring a drink, sensing the whispers and seeing people turn away, maybe she feels a sting, which is, of course, more than I can say for the ex-president facing a federal contempt charge. This week, his lawyers found yet another trove of stolen documents marked classified. But those same lawyers would not assert that they found all the documents marked classified because they don't trust their lying client to stop hiding them. And yet, I think accountability is coming. Accepting responsibility requires, after all, first accepting reality. And reality has a nasty habit of showing up to the party even when uninvited. Here's a snippet I want you to listen to, a conversation that took place this week between two of the biggest purveyors of sectional fantasy, uh, Sean Hannity and Newt Gingrich. Listen. I think Republicans have been unwilling, reluctant, resistant to voting early and voting by mail for whatever reasons. I think mail-in voting is is going to rig the election. I really do. There's clearly some abuse of mail-in voting. I think that mail-in voting is a terrible thing. When it comes to mail-in balloting, I don't know exactly where the checks and balances are. Are they good enough? Even the concept of early voting is not the greatest because a lot of things happen. No, it shouldn't be mailed in. You should vote at the booth. Will they be taken from the mailmen and the mailwomen? Mail-in ballots are very dangerous. There's tremendous fraud involved and tremendous illegality. Anyway, you get the idea. So Sean Hannity, there he is on the set talking to Newt Gingrich, and they're complaining that Republicans missed the boat by not voting early. And he says, for whatever reason, I don't know the reason why Republicans aren't early voting. We all know the reason, right? These guys and their friends, they told voters not to mail in ballots. They said only Democrats do it and it's bad. Now they're wondering why Republicans didn't vote early. Yeah, right. This gets me back to accountability. They aren't taking accountability for their own fabulously flawed advice, right? But they are acknowledging the consequences, the reality that they did so much to deny. I count that as a step in the right direction. I mean, if you're going to acknowledge reality, there are a lot of things that we can start to talk about like the way the right would rather use 
President Biden's repatriation, this trade he did to get Brittany Griner back here. They would rather use that to divide us than to celebrate the rescue. It really is. But I'm not holding my breath. Just because reality has made an appearance doesn't mean these guys are willing to stop trying to avoid it. Much good it'll do them. After all, this week, Congress gave the Medal of Honor to the members of the Capitol Police for their valor during the insurrection. The family of Officer Brian Sicknick, who you know died as a result of that insurrection, received a, a, a medal posthumously on his behalf. At the awards ceremony, they quite publicly refused, declined, wouldn't shake hands with Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, who, of course, were on hand for the photo op. Now, neither of those guys has consistently acknowledged what happened that day, um, uh, although it's pretty clear that both knew. Do you think that snub is a kind of accountability? You know, I do. Uh, just like I see the timid dawn of a GOP beginning to consider looking beyond Donald Trump as a kind of accountability, because here's the great thing. We can hold others accountable even when they fail to do so themselves. In fact, that's what I think all societies do when they enforce standards of behavior. Guys like Donald Trump will never accept responsibility for anything. But that doesn't mean there will not be accountability, which, of course, brings me to special counsel Jack Smith. This week, he subpoenaed election officials in Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, and Pennsylvania, asking for communications with or involving former President Trump and his 2020 campaign aides. Those election officials, they're an interesting group. Some are heroes who stood up against all kinds of pressure and intimidation, and they did the right thing in 2020. A few are fools who bought the lie and whose actions undermined the democracy, but all are now likely to comply. Is this accountability? Yeah, I think it is. And courtesy of the hard work of New York Attorney uh, Attorney General Letitia James, a jury has found the Trump Organization guilty on all counts of civil fraud. That's accountability. And it brings courage to those who have timidly waited in the wings. Cue uh, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, who earlier slow walked a criminal case on the same set of facts. He says he's now beginning to rethink that. And when it comes to accountability, here's the thing. The courts are doing their job. The Justice Department is doing its job. Attorneys general are doing their jobs. The much maligned media, if you subtract Fox, is largely doing its job. And when given the chance a few weeks ago, all across America, voters are doing their job. I don't know. And I don't care what Donald Trump or Kerry Lake or Mark Meadows or Rudy Giuliani or any of them say to themselves when they stare into the abyss of those empty souls of theirs. I do care that the rest of us protect each other and our democracy, that we do our jobs. Now, hundreds of insurrectionists have been prosecuted and many are in jail. And it, it, it takes longer to get to the leaders of the conspiracy, but I'm confident that's coming. When Mr. Trump has his turn, when he's convicted, does it really matter whether he calls himself a victim and denies the wrongdoing? To me, whether he owns up or shows remorse is just a sentencing question. Look, we have imposed accountability and we will continue to do so. But when we have imposed it on the leaders, then I beg, I beg all of you, those of us who never bought the lie, I beg you to forgive. 
if we are humble and welcoming, if we make it possible, I expect Americans from all parts of the country, Americans who bought the lie, who were confused about the difference between up and down, darkness and light, democracy and tyranny, all over America, those fellow citizens of ours will start to turn away from the folks who misled them. And the insurrection then will finally be over. We can contemplate this end only because we held, we held when it mattered most. You know, once a handful of brave Union soldiers on Little Round Top saved our democracy by holding, and they forever changed the democracy. It became the democracy of Lincoln, a new birth of freedom. This time, millions of Americans over the course of several years and multiple election cycles gave proof that what do you say? That government of the people, by the people, and for the people will not perish. I am grateful to all of you for that. Um, uh, my first guest, and I think we'll just go right there. Um, Robert Brandon is the co-founder uh, and, and president of the Fair Elections Center. And, you know, he has had a great seat to talk about what we've accomplished and what still needs to be done. Bob, welcome back. Can you hear me? Thank you, Edwin. Uh, um, Bob, you you worked very hard to help make sure that there were people in every polling place across America. Just not an easy task when that job has become a little more frightening and people were intimidated. I'm just, I'm in awe of my fellow citizens that we just proved again that we know how to run large, free, and fair elections. I mean, I'm particularly grateful to those in this cycle, Republicans and Democrats, who lost and then conceded. I think they did the country a huge favor in restoring confidence in elections and and, uh, after all the damage of Mr. Trump. I'm also in awe of the people that you recruited, the the tens of thousands, I don't know the number, millions, I don't know, of almost volunteers, of people who worked in polling places throughout the cycle. I think it's just when you see your neighbors doing that, it's harder to, you know, cause the kind of chaos that people were worried about. And I just I'd love to get your take on that. Sure. And and you're talking about, of course, um, the effort that the Fair Elections Center has been doing for a number of years now to recruit poll workers. Um, and in 2020, when the pandemic was going to lead to a massive number of people, because tend, the poll workers tended to be older and concerned about their health as they should have been, um, we were able to launch Power of the Polls, which recruited, in the end, over 700,000 people to apply to be poll workers. Um, and we, you know, largely were able to keep the polling sites open um, during the 2020 election, which was the largest turnout in history. Uh, in mm-hmm. 2022, that same effort, which was you know less needed slightly because turnout in midterms is usually lower, um, and also you know partially because of the work that was done in 2020, there was you know somewhat of a new generation of poll workers who were starting to do the work. And we're going to sign up again. But we wound up signing up over 260,000 people for this election. 
and the program stayed in touch with election officials to make sure that where there were shortages, we could crank up and look for more volunteers to be poll workers, both during early voting and on Election Day. So, and again, in the end, there were very few places that were affected by the lack of poll workers. And, you know, what I would just say, which I think you were alluding to, um, you know, as we watched this year and the threats from some of the crazy fringes of our country, um, you know, oh, we're going to go get people to stack the polls. We're going to go get people to clean out all the fraud. Um, in the end, people signed up to do their job, to run the election, and election officials did the same under, you know, in some cases, very difficult circumstances. We certainly had and saw a number of election officials decide to retire. This is a hard job. Um, people don't completely appreciate how difficult it really is in the day of technology. Um, and, you know, constant eye, you know, with people watching over what the job is. But in the end, um, the election officials, again, have done their job. The volunteers and the poll workers have done their job, and American voters went to the polls and participated in another very well-run, fair, and transparent election. I, I Yeah, I, I'm almost speechless in awe of my fellow citizens. I was once, you know, an election monitor in another country, and they, I think, wanted to run a fair election, but they didn't really know how yet. They didn't. They didn't have the their public wasn't participating in it in a way that allowed them to staff all the polling places. They didn't have a sort of sense among the population of what the rules were or how it worked. And it was it wasn't really a great election. Um, it, we Americans are, are good at this and we don't really understand how complicated it is to have millions of people cast a vote and have those votes counted. Yeah, um, I, you know, as, as as I said, and as, as you just alluded to, it, it's a somewhat complicated process. And one of the reasons is that there are many checks um, to make sure that not only are people able to cast their ballot, but it's counted properly. So there's, you know, in every instance, there's recounts. There are what's, what are called audits, which is essentially taking um, various chosen groups of uh, ballots and matching them against, for example, the machine count and, the, and literally the mm -hmm. paper count, so they could match a paper ballot with how it was counted in the machines. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. invariably, it is always accurate um, because the technology has gotten so good. The you know occasionally you saw this year some rogue and somewhat misguided county officials who said, you know what, these machines, it's all fraud. They're, you know, they're being controlled by China or outer space yeah. or someplace. And yeah. they, they refused to have machines do the balloting. So, number one, it's illegal in a lot of places because you need some access to electronic machines that are available to people with disabilities who can't yeah. uh, cast a regular paper ballot. But also... Um, hand counting, they wanted to hand count all the ballots and, um, you know, that would mean weeks of hand counting and hand counting notoriously is inaccurate, which is why we've moved to machines and obstacle scan machinery and so on with a backup of paper ballots and a paper trail so everything can be double checked.
So that's why, you know, for example, you've seen, well, why was Maricopa County taking so long? Because the state law required them to not only, first of all, not start counting ballots until after election day for all those, you know, millions of ballots that came in, or in the case of the county, hundreds of thousands that came in beforehand during the early voting period or the mail mail ballot period, um, and then they double check them, and um, you know they're double checked in a room with an observer from both parties, and you know, and that's a lot of that takes a lot of time as you saw it play out, mm-hmm. and it's ironic to me that the people that complained the most about the length of time it was taking, um, they were undermining the very process to make sure that there was accurate counting that they claim is the problem. Yeah, well, I think they did that on purpose. Undermining our confidence is part of the goal. But but before we get to the, that, that, that sort of political point, just in the nuts and bolts, when you run an enormous election like we have, things don't always go smoothly, right? And And... It's important to have the infrastructure, the legal infrastructure, not just the technical infrastructure, to be able to react quickly when, for example, a polling place in some county doesn't open on time, the the ability to have emergency litigation so that judges can extend hours. I think that happened in a couple of Texas counties, but it, it frequently happens. Sort of the handling of bumps is part of the normal process of fair elections. Right, and 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 you you pointed to one of the more uh, typical situations, although it's not you know it's still rare, but it happens in every yep. election where machines aren't working because the electricity. I, I mean, I remember literally in Ohio there was um, they they had trouble connecting, uh, they had trouble getting the machines to work, and um, and they were connected internally to with a um, a, um, a Wi-Fi system. Um, and they, they couldn't get, and it, this is not, they don't go to the internet, just to be clear, they're just internally, uh, connected and, um, couldn't get them going. Somebody did go to court. The judges kept the, um, polls open for an extra three hours to account for the fact that it took them mm-hmm. three hours. The, the way they got it open is one of the young poll workers went and reset the modem, which nobody thought yeah. about doing. Right. So, it's one reason why we really encourage young people to be poll workers. You know, they tend to be more technologically savvy. Um, they, in many cases, you can find more bilingual speakers in the younger age group. Um, so, you know, that's part of the uh, reason that we've launched these major efforts to diversify and bring in a new generation of poll workers. Yeah. Into the I mean, classroom. I once had to go out and get an extension cord. Because they didn't, you know, somehow one was missing. And so we had to go out and get one to make sure that all of the, uh, you know, uh, uh, places, individual spots where people could vote were up and running. It's it's just it's just it's amazing things work as smoothly as they do. But that 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 there's grown up a a cadre of lawyers around the country and the courts know it's coming and are prepared for it all to deal with the bumps in the road so that we can have a fair and transparent process that accounts for the kinds of things that would normally go wrong when you say to, you know, 200 million people, hey, you can show up and vote. I mean, it's a, it's just, it's a, I'm in awe that it works as well as it does and that we handle the bumps as calmly as we normally do. 
And, and, you know, you've been part of that for a long time because voting is now not what it was, you know, when I was young or when you were young. I mean, now the period of voting is extended in many places and we can vote by mail or we can vote early. That's, you know, relatively new and becoming more of a thing. Election day isn't election day anymore. It's the end of the election cycle. And, and, you know, that adds complexity, even as it adds convenience for the voters, like every other business that thinks about their clients. Right. And, and you know, the, and so we're focused pretty much on the mechanics of running the election. We still have to keep in mind that there's a continuing trend in some places, in many places, to reduce that access, to reduce the convenience factor of early voting. Um, and it happened, you know, it happened pre, almost like clockwork when there was a, uh, the turnout, when the record turnout in 2020 happened, and some state legislators saw that the numbers of young people voting have increased dramatically, the numbers of uh, uh, Asian Pacific Islander voters, the numbers of black women. Um, you know, it's not a surprise that some of these legislatures who didn't, who really thrive on the fact that there's a smaller voting pool, um, these these legislators want to choose the voters that vote for them rather than the other way around, that the voters choose mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And so we, we saw it, you know, literally right after the 2020 election and the 2021 legislative sessions in Texas and Georgia and Florida and uh, North Carolina. You know, currently in Ohio, they're debating a new bill that's going to restrict dramatically what was an otherwise fairly decent set of rules in Ohio, even though it's not the most expansive by any means. It's not like Illinois is now or or even Wisconsin has its own problems, but it has a lot of options. Um, so we saw, you know, ridiculous Reductions of the time to early voting. We saw restrictions on getting mail ballots um, passed. Um, so we we and we continue to see efforts to make it harder through voter suppression. And it's a two-edged sword because in many cases now we have voters who are going to push back against that and say, "Okay, you want to mm-hmm. take my vote away? I'm not going to let you. I'm going to make that extra step in order to vote." But we, but we also know that there are people that wind up not voting because of some of these changes. Yeah, so I, I, I wanted to talk to you about that. I, I know voter suppression is still a thing or is a thing again. And, I, and just so that everybody listening knows, Democrats have a historical ability to be just as guilty as Republicans in this. Here in Chicago, where I live, the election for mayor is in February. And those of you who don't live in Chicago, February in Chicago is not a time that anybody wants to be outside. They did that so that, you know, the city workers would vote because their jobs depended on it and the rest of the people might stay home. So these are not, these are, this isn't really partisan, although right now around the country, it's a Republican issue, not a Democratic one. But historically, everybody's been guilty. Um, Bob, in Georgia, we, you know, you go and you look at the news and there were long lines of people to vote where everybody was a person of color, there were not long lines when people were voting who weren't. That should just be illegal, but I guess our Supreme Court has washed their hands of these issues. Um, And I know that, that, at least in the numbers I've seen, the black vote is down a little bit this cycle compared to 
the last. I don't know if that's just because it's off year, but it, th- those trends worry me. Yeah, it, it is somewhat off year. Um, the, the issue about adequate resources for polling places has been around for a while. And, it, you know, it is absolutely true that uh, historically and traditionally and even now, there are many areas um, where, uh, the, you know, if in the case of Georgia, the legislature, the governor, um, the people running the elections are uh, largely Republicans, even though some county officials are Democratic. But um, still in those counties that are traditionally um Urban counties with high turn with high levels of voters who would t- tend to be democratic, uh, the resources are not there, and the long mm-hmm. lines are a tribute to both enthusiasm over voting and a lack of resources. Uh, and I, I I can just add to that, um, as you know, uh, the Fair Election Center has run for now twelve almost twelve years at the Campus Vote Project, where we partner with college campuses around the country um, to get the schools to be drivers of information and action so that their students can vote. And we saw many areas where, you know, we've we've heard about the youth turnout was enormous this time, second highest in the last 30 years um, for a midterm, um, and long lines at college campuses. And, you know, on one hand, we celebrate that. On the other hand, we say, we have to do something about election officials not providing the same support for young people trying to become more involved in our democracy than they do for other voters. Bob, I need to take a break. It's the bottom of the hour, but I do want to talk a little bit more about young voters when we come back. Everybody uh, stay tuned. More with Bob Brandon in just a moment. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Welcome back. I'm talking with Bob Brandon. He is, of course, the president and co-founder of the Fair Elections Center, a national nonpartisan voting rights and election reform organization based in our nation's capital. Bob, we were talking about this before the break. Young people showed up to, for a lot of reasons, but among them to tell all of us older statesmen that the democracy is safe in their hands. They really came out in droves. Remind everybody again about your campus vote project and the impact that you have seen this cycle. Sure. And and as I mentioned, uh, the campus vote project, which we launched in 2012 in partnership with many of the college administrators around the country, with the basic premise that our institutions of higher education are the places where young people should learn about the most fundamental part of our democracy, which is voting. So, you know, we we partner and provide resources as we do for all voters, like in all 50 states, information on how you can vote and register and so on to the campuses, to the administration, to the faculty so that they can provide that to their students and then provide, uh, you know, really an effort to institutionalize that knowledge year in and year out. So we're not just relying on student activists who graduate after all. So we we have a, a constant program, and over the years we've seen the youth vote increase pretty substantially over time, and the college vote in 2020, for example, 
um, in the in the on the colleges over a thousand colleges that, where there was measurement of of voting in college precincts reached about sixty six percent was which was just a tick under the sixty eight percent overall turnout now that's extraordinary because young people typically have been voting at half the rate of the rest of us and that has changed uh, in the last few years in particular um, as I'm in in twenty twenty the overall rate, not just colleges, college students, but all young people, um, reached about 51%, which was a big jump from the 39% the, the election before and the highest ever. In this year, um, the turnout for 18 to 29-year-olds uh, was um, 27%, which, as I mentioned before, was the second highest midterm turnout in the last 35 years or so. In 2018, it was 31 percent. It was the highest at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think young Americans are deeply engaged and very concerned about their future. Very concerned. Um, I know when I talk to young people, it's sort of the issues of the environment and whether or not they're going to have a democracy that works for them as they work through both that and other complicated issues. And I think young people are very thoughtful about those questions. Yeah, we, we've done a, a number of um, research projects, focus groups and polling, uh, particularly this year, um, talking to current college students about their motivation to vote and not vote. And, you know, in addition to pointing out that they appreciate and want information from their school, um, you know, the very thing we're trying to build into our program, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, they identified the motivations they have to try to make the world a better place. You mentioned climate change is absolutely, you know, top. Uh, after the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, they, um, many of them talked about the importance of, uh, of women's health access and privacy concerns. And, and um, they mentioned gun violence quite a bit. Um, and criminal justice generally, but gun violence in particular. Um, and, you know, then like everybody else, they're concerned about the cost of living and inflation and whether or not they're going to have a decent job going forward. Yeah, but they have, I mean, when you feel that way, there, I guess there are multiple paths you could take. One is to turn your backs on the democracy and say, it's not working for me. I got to do something else. But that's not what happened. They proved sort of a, once again, a kind of American patriotism that they believe that this system can work for us. And they showed up and did what Americans do. They voted. And that, I think, was an enormously hopeful sign. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I would have said to you, we were talking 10 years ago, that young people care a lot about all these issues. They're not convinced that the political system can deliver for anything for them because they looked around and saw that it really wasn't talking to them and it was pretty dysfunctional and it's still, you know, in many places, pretty dysfunctional, but, um, you know, certainly at some level at the state level and at the local level, they're beginning to see some of the things they care about being addressed. Um, I know they pointed out some of the explicit things about the administration, the Biden administration's delivering on some things like the student loan, the student loan debt relief was a big mm -hmm. deal for mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, doing something about, you know, for the, to the extent that some of them have been following the gun violence issues, seen, doing something about gun violence, right. Um, right. you know, again, a little esoteric, but um, hearing about the Justice Department banning chokeholds and investigating police departments that have been, you know, considered fairly rogue to police departments in terms of how they police, particularly mm-hmm. in of color. So, um, you know, they're smart, they're aware, they're concerned. And for many of them, you could see it in the protests. And you could also just see it in the day-to-day decision to help their community, you know, volunteer and so on. And so for me, those things are all extremely important. But if they don't decide that the democracy we have is going to help deliver some of those things, then we're all in trouble. So it's it's a hopeful sign to see them getting more yeah. involved. I, I agree. And and young people ran for office at many levels this cycle, and some did pretty well. I, I All of that, I think, is uh, really important, really important. You know, we, we mentioned in, in some of these focus groups, because just like everybody else, people go, yeah, I, either I voted, but I'm not sure my one vote matters, or, you know, mm-hmm. I actually didn't vote. I got really busy. I forgot. And besides, my one vote doesn't matter. But we were able to say to the people that we talked to in this research, do you know that the your your generation had the highest turnout they ever have had and it was in 2020 and it resulted in the election of the youngest most diverse congress in history when they hear that they go oh it wasn't my single vote it was all of us making our voices heard actually had an impact and now they can look at people um you know like the 25 year old that just got elected from mm-hmm. south florida um uh, Maxwell Alejandro Frost, who was an organizing director for March for Our Lives, the effort by young people that spontaneously came up after the Parkland shootings. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he, who is a, he's a young man who's a Afro-Cuban descent, um, and he got elected. And, you know, many other people in their 30s were elected in this uh, in this Congress. And so, you know, that's another thing that young people, young voters can point to and say, well, we're going to start seeing people that are like us. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's awesome. And I think the work that you have done and, uh, you, you know, the Fair Elections Center has done over time has helped make that transition possible, has helped invite young people sort of to participate and to show them that they have real power. So it's a Yes. I like to think that's true, and I, and I do think that's true. That's why we do the work we do. But mm-hmm. I'd also say it's it's a really it's a tribute to the people that work with us. We have uh, you know a large, young, diverse staff, but more importantly, every year we have we pay about three hundred students across the country to work with their administration and their faculty and their and their colleagues on campus to help everybody understand what the rules are, how you get involved in 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 elect, you know running for office or how you get involved mm-hmm. in, in voting, making sure you're registered, know what the rules are. And those people we invest a lot to make sure they understand the strength and power they have as young people organizing for the future. 
it's a great gift from one generation to the next and so important for the continuity of democracy. It's just impossible to overstate. Um, uh, let's change, though, from a happy topic like that to an unhappy topic. I, I refer to Ohio as the land that democracy forgot. I mean, what do you make of sending 15 members to Congress who were selected from districts that the Ohio Supreme Court said were not constitutional and couldn't be used? The message it sends to me is there is no power in the land to redress that outrage. Yeah, this it, it's pretty disappointing, and and you know this was an, uh, an another example of where legislators turned their back on the will of the people. So there was an effort initially by grassroots organizations and gov- good government organizations and organizations working to mobilize and getting involved, the various constituencies that have traditionally been underrepresented, um, to pass a, a citizens' commission on redistricting. Um, the legislature weighed in, and, they, and in order to sort of avoid that being put on the ballot, they came up with a hybrid program that they knew they could largely ignore, which is essentially what they did. And then with a lot of the crazy machinations back and forth, in the end, it wound up in the courts. And the courts, uh, in this case, the state Supreme Court in Ohio, um, which is a, you know, these are partisan elections. I mean, they're, they're called nonpartisan, but the, right. the judges are, are Republican or Democrat and the majority was Republican. And, um, so they, you know, basically left in place what was a gerrymandered district. Now, Ohio is not the worst gerrymandered state by any means, but it was on its way. It was supposed to be on its way to have a better system. And, uh, what the legislation that set up this commission, hybrid commission slash legislature process, uh, basically said, well, if it doesn't work and we don't agree together that it's a good system going uh, after 2020 for the 2022 election, we can come back and revisit it, not in 10 years, but in four years. That was their their sort of fail safe. And so the Voters of Ohio, unfortunately, are going to have to wait another election cycle before they can potentially address the what yeah. clearly was considered a unconstitutional gerrymandering. Yep, and and now in Ohio, they're going after they're trying to. Rest, I mean, choosing your own voters by gerrymandering, they succeeded in doing government of the party by the party and for the party, but apparently that's not enough. Now they are uh, actively trying to restrict voting in other ways to roll back some of that um, openness that you talked about earlier. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? I mean, it's going to make yeah, it harder for they, military you know, people it, to vote. It's going to make it harder for everybody. The legislature, which is about to end, you know, in a week, yep. is is rushing through um, two bills to – uh, one, one is one is is clawing back a lot of the changes that have been made over the years, shortening early voting periods. Um, you know, we uh, making it more difficult to do mail balloting. Um, there's a variety of things like that, and then it, literally at the last minute, they substituted for a 15-page bill, 147-page bill, and it's got even more of that stuff in it. And then separately, they've 
they are running, uh, they've introduced another bill that would provide in Ohio for the first time a strict photo ID law, as strict as any in the country. And they have mm-hmm. not had that before. And so it's a little unclear. You know, it's being rushed through. Um, you know, the public has, you know, 24-hour notice that they can come and talk about it if they want in the legislature's session. It's kind of a joke. And, um, you know, we'll see. I mean, we, we're we involved in legislative advocacy in about 15 states around the country where um, we work with both our campus program people and other allies that are doing a lot of uh, voter rights work on the ground. So everybody's trying to weigh in in Ohio, but it's a, you know, it's a state that's got uh, a, a conservative le- a Republican legislature and House and the Senate, a governor who's a Republican. I think, it, you know, we'll see. I think um, a lot of people are unaware of this because it happens so quickly with so little public notice. Whether or not there can be enough outcry or not, I don't know. And whether, um, you know, with I, I, have, I have my one suspicion is that the ID law, which looks really bad, maybe is the, is the way to, to deflect attention from all the other stuff, which is quite bad as well. But maybe they don't pursue the one and they get all the other. Now, that's me just speculating. I have no idea if that's true or not. But yeah, I mean, it's um, I don't think the public outcry will matter to them. You know, they, they're so gerrymandered. And again, they're not. Wisconsin, but they're pretty close, that the legislators don't care what the voters think because they pick them. It's not, yeah. They can't be held accountable for anything. Right. I mean, this is obviously the problem with gerrymandering all over the country, as you mentioned. Yep. But, you know, whether you've got Wisconsin or, you know, Pennsylvania or North Carolina or mm-hmm. Florida or Georgia, you name it, Texas. Um, and, you know, the Democrats were perfectly fine doing this. And same Illinois. That's right. In Illinois. Yep. But, but we, you know, we do now have a system where um, you don't have to worry because everybody's in a safe district. And um, so there's no reason to be responsive to a broader constituency to try to no, get things done. No. And I believe our United States Supreme Court said, oh, gee, the federal courts are closed to this discussion. Don't bother coming to us with gerrymandering. Yeah, they, you know, we, we'll, we'll see, you know, that the one place that it's been, defe- they've been stopped is when it's been considered a violation of the Voting Rights Act because of racial gerrymandering. The Supreme Court, as you're alluding to, um, you know, just last in the last term said, well, purely partisan gerrymandering, that we're just trying to gain advantage for one party over mm-hmm. the other. We don't really have a role in that. And, um, you know, it is interesting that the North Carolina State Supreme Court weighed in under the state's constitution. But I can tell you that the state Supreme Court has just flipped from a majority Democratic to a majority Republican. So we'll see what happens there. But yes, Ohio's court got more Republican this time. Right. Yep. Right. Yep. Yep. So they will they will uh, after the fact approve the maps that were unconstitutional before. But I'm not a lawyer. I always thought the law wasn't dependent on the personnel. But hey. Yeah. Well, you know, it, I, I mean, I, you know, what I was taught in law school is that you, you know, facts in the law matter and jurisprudence is, relies on precedent and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And it really tests you as a lawyer 
to see what's going on. And it's a ref- unfortunately, it's a reflection of how divided the country has become and how few people there are that are willing to just follow the rules and the law. And if they don't like it, they're going to change it to take advantage and, and try to gain more power. And that just, yeah. you know, that's the part that all of us that are trying to make sure our democracy is vibrant really worry about. I do think, by and large, the courts, whether whether the uh, judge was nominated by Democrat or Republican, the federal courts, by and large, have done their job and done it credibly. I, I do not count the Supreme Court in that. I, I've lost my faith in them. Um, but the courts generally, even where they've made mistakes, they've tried to correct them. Um, so I think we still have a functioning independent judiciary, uh, notwithstanding what's going on at the yeah. top. And, but, you, know. you know, it's it's a big part of our organization, too. We litigate all over the country. We challenge mm-hmm. some of these laws. We've been successful in a number of places. We haven't been successful in some. But, um, it, you, you know, you have to do everything you can. And I agree with you that, um, you know, not just the, the federal courts and the state courts um, still have a residual of making decisions that are not purely ideological and political. I do share your concern about the Supreme Court because we know there are individual justices on there now that seem to not be particularly focused on the traditions and the importance of following precedent and uh, in this current Supreme Court, but rather running an ideological agenda. Yeah. Outcome-based law. That's I see that when I worked in Saudi Arabia. You know, rule by law is not rule of law. Mm. Not even close. Not even close. So, so Bob, the last sort of topic for us, and we have a few minutes left. I, I just want to look forward to the next presidential cycle. And you know, you, you have stuff bubbling up in states all over the place, but we've now had a couple of elections where, you know pretty major folks from an ex-president to a lot of uh, uh, people running around the country were doing everything they could to tell Americans elections don't work. Elections are crooked. Elections need to be undermined. We kind of held the line and, and didn't buy their nonsense and fought back and won. But what are we looking at in the next two years? I mean, I see some big threats, big threats still, the independent state legislature doctrine high on my list. It should never get a hearing, let alone a hearing at the Supreme Court. Um, What are the threats that we have to pay attention to? Yeah. Um, Well, I I share your concerns. You know, we, I, I think in this, this election cycle, we were able to, uh, as I, as you said, and I said, people turned out, you know, whether it was the people running the elections or people voting, that made a difference in terms of those that were threatening uh, to stop elections, threatening to challenge them after they were, uh, ca- you know, the votes were cast and so on. We shouldn't assume that that's not going to happen again. Uh, we'd like to think that it's maybe less likely, but I, you know, it all depends on how uh, jazzed up some of these unhinged people are and whether the former president is going to continue to do what he's been doing, which is both undermining our democracy and and getting lots of people to, you know, not understand how our democracy works. 
Um, so that's a concern. I think there's also, um, because of the control, uh, the partisan nature of election of uh, legislatures these days in some states, there continues to be some concern that not, not only are we going to see more voter suppression, but efforts to try to really undermine election results by just taking the decision on certifying elections back to the legislature and do it in a partisan way. And which gets us a little bit to the independent state legislative theory, which I'm, you know, it's a whole different show probably, but you know, it, 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 it's, um, being, it just got a hearing at the Supreme court. We're very proud of the fact that our organization filed an amicus brief on behalf of the legal women voters of the U S and all 50 of their state chapters, um, talking about the chaos that would ensue if you wound up having a situation where state legislatures can pass laws that violate the state constitution, but state courts cannot look at them and challenge them because there's a clause in the elections clause of the of the federal constitution that says the states have the control over the, the manner and time mm-hmm. of federal elections. That really wasn't meant to be and therefore, we can also decide who gets to vote and who doesn't get to vote. Uh, yes, and there's nothing in our history that says, I mean, it, it, even in the even pre-Lincoln history in America, there's everyone was concerned about balancing power, having checks and balances, three branches in the federal government, federalism itself. These were all to make sure that we didn't have a tyrant. And now they're considering a theory that says one group, Cannot you can't question what they did on an issue of elections? Period. It's up to them, and that is the the uh, I, again the non-lawyer in me looks at these so-called uh, originalists, people who care about what the founder said, but apparently have never hired a historian in the history of the Supreme Court who don't care that much about what they really thought um, are, are going to give us some unaccountable anything to do with elections um, seems bizarre and dangerous. I agree with you. I'm terrified of this. I'm, I, I do know, Bob, the hearing that the, the hearing that they held was on, I mean, how apt was this? was on December 7th. They're going to hear this case yeah. about destroying our democracy on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Right. <laughs> I, I did remind my staff, you know, that when they were getting ready to put the, our brief in, that when they announced the hearing date, I said, you know, you know, that's a day that will live in infamy, right? Yeah. And some of them, yeah. you know, some of our some of our staff are a little bit younger. They don't doesn't resonate quite as much. But um, yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, the the other thing about that theory is that if it if it went through, and I don't believe it will. I think there's. Uh, it's so extreme and it's been settled for so long that that isn't the way we run the elections. Um, you'd have two sets of elections in all these states. You'd have state law, ele- you know, governed elections that could be managed by the courts if they were unconstitutional at state level mm-hmm. and federal elections that would be separate. And so you'd have yep. people would have to go and get two different ballots They'd have to have different voter registration, different standards. Exactly. Yeah. It would be chaos everywhere. Yep. But those who don't like the idea of democracy seem to like the idea of throwing our elections into chaos. 
I mean, once again in Arizona, I guess uh, the loser of the governor's race there has decided to file court. I don't know if there's any jurisdiction in the country that is more skilled at defending its good work in court than Maricopa County. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> going to have to know, do it again. Say, you know, I think everybody has gotten to the point where they really know how to run elections correctly. Now, that's not to say that there aren't many laws that have gotten in the way of people mm-hmm. being able to easily and successfully cast a ballot. And as we know, it's particularly targeted the constituencies that have traditionally been underrepresented because of yeah. barriers that were put in the way. Yeah. And that includes young people and the constituencies of color and immigrant communities and and so on. And, and the disabled community, we were representing a number of, of people um, with disabilities, we're going to be filing something in Arizona that uh, because there's a law there that says people with disabilities can't have anybody help them cast their ballot or deliver it except an immediate family member. We're talking to paralyzed mm. veterans of America mm. who are mm. in institutions whose social workers have often helped them with ballot access, and um, now they can't do that. If this law goes through, and we're going to, yeah. well, I, I, as always, I'm grateful for our conversations, and more grateful for the work that you um, and the center do year in and year out to uh, keep our elections free and fair and accessible to every citizen who wants to vote. Well, thanks, Edwin. I always appreciate chatting with you, and people want to get more information about us, we can go to fairelectioncenter.org and find out more about the work we do and can support us. Always good at the end of year. Every organization needs those end-of-year dollars. So those of you who are interested in this good work, get online, Fair Election Center, find it, contribute. Bob, thanks so much. Uh, Have a happy new year. And you too, Ed. Good to talk to you. Okay. Take care. All right, everybody. We will be back uh, in after the news uh, with Kyle Tharp, and we're going to talk about digital uh, campaigning. Some really interesting stuff uh, as we analyze what happened in the last election. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. All right, everybody. Welcome back. Kyle Tharp is joining us again. You remember him. He's the co-founder, editor, lead writer of For What It's Worth. That's the newsletter that tracks digital spending strategy and trends in our elections. Hi, Kyle. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me back on, Edwin. We have a lot to talk about. Um, yes, we do. Do, do you yet while, know right? how much was how much was spent? sort of on digital campaigns this cycle? We don't. I mean, we have uh, sort of broad outlines, but very large top lines are kind of hard to pull together because of all the different groups spending. Um, But, you know, one thing that we found before Election Day and and saw afterwards was just a major, uh, major disparity between Democrats and their outside groups versus Republicans in terms of spending on places like Facebook and Google. It was just uh, it wasn't even close, um, particularly what we saw concluding this week with the Georgia runoff election, even after Election Day, with a lot of Republican hand wringing uh, Democrats like Raphael Warnock and his allies 
continued to outspend Herschel Walker, something like four to one. So, I mean, we're talking about tens of millions, if not over $100 million in spending on places like Facebook and Google this year, which is really wild. And do you think the digital spend has, I mean, where does it compare to the spending on TV and campaigns now? That's a really uh, great question. It uh, is completely dwarfed by television spending, believe it or not. Um, still, yeah, yeah. The, the political campaign industry is dominated by a lot of television consultants that make a lot of money off of TV advertising, even though so many Americans are, are cutting the cord and, and you know not watching traditional broadcast TV anymore. Um, it still is a lion's share of a budget. Although I will say that it, every cycle we see a shrink a little bit more and, and digital yep. increase. And, and I think moving forward, that's going to be the case. Really interesting. It's just, I mean, yeah. it's really interesting. And, um, and the spending patterns, but also the awareness of what was going on online in the past has led to some changes like Facebook, which it just for me was a villain forever. Seems to, mm-hmm. I don't want anything nice about them, but they were a little less villainous with with sort of right wing nonsense this cycle. Do I am I Absolutely. right about that? Yeah, I, I think that was one of the biggest stories at the intersection of the internet and politics this cycle was Facebook's sort of exit from politics. So for a long time, Facebook tried to be a definitive source of news and information for their users. They had these financial partnerships with major media publishers. And, and as you know, we've talked about many times before, big right-wing pages like Ben Shapiro and Fox News would get tons and tons of likes and shares on their content on the platform. Well, I did a quick analysis of, of Facebook engagement over the past two years. And what we've seen is Facebook has intentionally deprioritized political content and news content and users' feeds. So if you're on Facebook, you're more likely to see vertical animal videos and pictures from your loved ones uh, or maybe favorite brands rather than political content. People are going to have a lot of ideas about whether that's good or bad, but it's, it was a major change this year, um, particularly you know during the Trump era. So much conservative content would, would just spread like wildfire on that platform. So I think it's generally a good development, but it definitely was one of the biggest stories that I saw this year. Yeah, amazing. Really amazing. Um, yeah, and, for sure. And I, I am encouraged by it. I mean, I like political news. I love that people are engaged with it, but but it has to be responsible news, you know, not just uh, whatever anybody wants to say crazy stuff. Yeah. And and no one really benefits from a whole bunch of just partisan clickbait, you know, share this if you hate Trump or love Trump. Like it's just, it's a whole bunch of nonsense that, that kind of was garbage filling people's feeds anyway. And it's really good to see uh, how Facebook has kind of intentionally turned down the dial on that. Um, I think that's going to have a big impact on how campaigns are run in 2024 and where all those eyeballs move to are, it, you know, folks, where are they going to get their political information then if, if not well, on Facebook? Is it going to be somewhere else? Well, so, so I don't want to be too um, Pollyannish or optimistic about Facebook <laughs> not being the, the source of such divisive and dishonest uh, news as it was in the past, e- even though so many people have sprung up to watch social media, to police social media dark money does what it does. And there's a whole lot of stuff still finding its way out there. Have you seen that? Have you seen, you know, I mean, I, I, I think about all the 
uh, I don't even know what to say, citizens for a cleaner world who are really funded by like big <laughs> oil, you know, stuff like that yeah. is out there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You know, after the 2016 election, there's this whole industry of academia and, and nonprofits, uh, think tanks that kind of sprung up to police and monitor misinformation and disinformation online. And those groups have done really great work and put out tons of reports, but we've seen bad actors kind of adapt to this new world of misinformation monitoring and kind of get around some of the rules a little bit. So a couple examples this year that I personally identified was one, we saw uh, a whole bunch of pro supposedly pro climate ads that were telling uh, members of Congress to kill Joe Biden's climate legislation on Capitol Hill because it wasn't progressive enough. It turns out those ads were bought and paid for by uh, some type of industry group uh, that had ties to Republican operatives that really just wanted to kill the bill. So, you know, that was that was pretty shocking uh, discovery on our part that groups were able to create all of these different entities in order to advertise and, and essentially deceive voters. On uh, another level, more recently, in the final week of the election, we saw all these ads pop up urging Republicans to not vote for the Republican candidates because they weren't. Oh, I want to talk to you about that. The rhino stuff (laughs) is so interesting. It's it's just just hang on, because I know exactly where you're going, but I need to like we went a little too fast for everybody who's listening online. So, yeah, Kyle and I, he was just talking about how how, uh, for instance, on the environmental stuff, groups organized with really tight, the real intention was to kill environmental legislation, but they pretended to be environmentalists. And so, you know, every Democrat gets, gets their hackles up and says, this is outrageous. It should never happen. Right. But, but now hear this. Yeah. So in the final week of the midterms, uh, we saw, ads running in, I believe, four states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Arizona, uh, that were telling Republicans not to vote for the Republican candidate for state legislature in their district uh, because they were uh, tied to ballot mule schemes or they were secret Democrats. They were not conservative enough. And these advertisers were called rhino hunter pages, you know, Republicans in name only. So they they were accusing these Republican candidates of, of being rhinos and telling people not to vote for them. Well, the only alternative would be to vote for the Democrats. And so they serve the purpose of, you know, decreasing Republican vote share in a whole bunch of highly competitive state legislative races. Uh, I took a closer look at, at who was behind some of these groups and found ties to some prominent Democratic consulting firms uh, and nonprofits. So uh, I, I don't have exact individuals pinned down on who is behind this, although uh, I, I am familiar with several of the Democratic groups and firms that were involved. Um, so that was another you know, really interesting uh, way that smart, sophisticated operators are able to get around political transparency rules and really run ads saying whatever they want without people knowing who's behind them. Yep. So I, I, um, I don't like that. I would prefer that we have rules that everybody abide by and it's better for the democracy. But the partisans who are listening are going to cheer that Democrats have figured out how to play, how to use all of the edges that Republicans have used in the past. None of it's good for us, but uh, they use them and they use them well. Yeah, I, I'm torn on it as well, right? When when our very democracy is at stake, you know, I, I think this is an example of some Democrats bringing, you know, not bringing a knife to a gunfight. And so 
uh, it's extremely controversial. Uh, folks will have lots of opinions on it, but um, but people are going to do what they have to do. Yeah. Um, Kyle, um, I have so many questions, and I'm just looking at the clock. I want to make sure I ask you when you can answer before we have to take a break. Um, we, yeah, we talked sure. about state legislative races when you and I talked in October before the midterms. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were telling that Democrats were paying more attention to these races online than Republicans. And I didn't know what to make of it at the time. Then this happened. Democrats had a miraculously strong showing in state legislative races around the country. What does that tell you? Yeah, I mean, that type of investment really paid off. So a, a typical swing state state legislative race does not receive a lot of advertising investment. And so your dollars go so much farther if you're if you're you know spending on digital advertising, targeting voters in specific zip codes. I mean, several thousand dollars is is a major investment in some of these races. And so the fact that Democrats really prioritize and spread out their money uh, to win key chambers in key states uh, will have an enormous impact on. <laughs> literally our democratic future moving forward uh, in 2024, particularly with all of these state legislatures, uh, Republican state legislators eager to, to do a whole bunch of crazy election stuff. So I, that was, I that mean, was flipped really Michigan important. prevented a supermajority in Wisconsin. I mean, remarkable things that I think you know, flipped Pennsylvania as well. Yeah. Uh, everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was really <laughs> great. Um, and that type of down ballot investment is something that democratic operatives and voters have been asking for for a long time, and we finally received it. Um, it was another example. You know, we, we spoke before Election Day. I've said this ad nauseum about Republicans just running an old school campaign this cycle up and down the ballot. And Democrats really were able to take advantage of a whole bunch of Republican campaigns not not doing their best. Um, and, and particularly on the state legislative level, that resulted in some, like you said, miraculous results. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hints to everybody listening, we cannot count on that happening ever again. So yeah. enjoy it for a moment. It's not going to get any easier. Hey, we need to take a quick break. Uh, Kyle and I have a lot more to talk about. Don't go away. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, everybody, I am talking to Kyle Tharp, uh, the co-founder, editor, lead writer of a newsletter called For What It's Worth, that it uh, is really interesting and really focuses on digital campaigning. It's um, a bigger and bigger part of our lives. Hey, Kyle, we are turning from uh, this election cycle to around the country a more very local sort of municipal elections, mayors and the like all over the country next year. Um, what, what do you expect to see in the digital campaigning world in, you know, in, in uh, elections at that level? For sure. Um, particularly in some of these major mayoral races. I know, I think Chicago has a big one coming up just in a couple of months. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the, Key operatives 
and consulting firms and, and folks that were working on the midterms, particularly on winning campaigns in the midterms, have already pivoted to, to start working on some of these major campaigns in municipalities. And so a lot of the tactics that you saw this cycle will likely translate into some of these more localized races. Um, I expect major spending in the Chicago mayoral election, um, as well as in other places. Um, I think one thing that we saw this cycle that was really huge, and I've mentioned before, is the rise, the impact of the youth vote um, and how campaigns tried to reach younger voters. And I would definitely, particularly in these big progressive cities, um, anticipate a whole bunch of campaigns trying to reach younger voters using things like TikTok and Snapchat and online engagement tools, too. Um, yep. So definitely, I think a lot of these learnings are going to translate to next year's elections, too. Yeah, I mean, and local TV, you know, certainly news ratings are way down. People are finding their news in other ways. So I, the digital world is, it, I, I don't know how else camp. I mean, the, of course, the tried and true and very best method, which is like to go to somebody's door, is still going to mm-hmm. happen in, in big cities. But I think a lot of uh, what used to be TV is going to be replaced. Um, oh, for more sure. interesting and targeted digital stuff. Well, and that on-the-ground organizing stuff is, is really going to make a difference in places like Chicago. The, this cycle, remember, in, in 2020, we were not able to knock on doors because of the pandemic. This cycle, mm-hmm. we saw Democrats really mobilize their voters on the ground, tons and tons of events around the country. And uh, I definitely think, you know, Democratic field organizing is here to stay and, um, and will just be continuously ramped up until 2024. And, and, and but they they work together because so much organizing these days relies on social media. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, how are campaigns recruiting volunteers to come uh, volunteer at their events? And that's using you know websites where they can easily get people to sign up or sharing the word on Facebook or elsewhere on social. So they definitely yeah. go hand in hand. Yeah, it's really interesting. Okay, I, I the the other thing I want to talk to you about is um, sort of the downside of using social media to fundraise and, and, and attract attention. And that is the grift, it's just the mm. grift. Um, yep. I, I, I don't, is, you know, I mean, I think about the appeals to raise money for Herschel Walker, where I give money for Herschel Walker and most of the cash ended up at the NRSC, not at Herschel Walker. That's exactly campaign. right. Right. Yep. Well, that, but for those of you who are listening, I'm sorry about the acronym. That's the National Republican Senate Campaign Committee, not the not the candidate himself. But they asked for money, and then they gave like 10% of it to poor Mr. Walker. And and Trump oh, oh, does no, this all the time. It, it was 1% of the money went to Herschel Walker. Oh, my gosh. 99% oh, my gosh. of the NRSC. Right. Yeah, and, and Donald Trump is even worse. He's raised uh, countless amounts of money to get involved in races, and and it goes to him, not to the races. Like, is there any consumer protection for people who want to make donations online? There is not, and it's uh, it's a tragedy. I think this cycle, I heard so many complaints on both sides of the aisle uh, about bad actors you know, spamming and scamming their supporters. I spoke with a lot of uh, Democratic consultants who are trying to change that behavior on the left. 
Um, but you're right. It's ubiquitous. I mean, online fundraising in politics is just known as a very scammy thing. And it really stinks. You know, you donate to one campaign, you give them $5 because you believe in them. And suddenly all these other random campaigns around the country are filling your inbox with. Your list and your, yeah. Yeah. You get a million yeah. emails and some of them. I mean, I, we, we saw this with Donald Trump in his campaign. You know, some you don't even know it, but you have. You, by by giving him something once, you've committed to an, a monthly payment plan where they take money from oh. you every month. And, and they've had to, yeah. you know, been forced to refund a lot of that, but still. It's a travesty, particularly for senior citizens. I think the Republicans are much worse in that regard, right? They, they yeah. definitely have adopted more scammy and spammy tactics. And as a result this year, you saw them raking in less donations. I think they really burned through a lot of their online fundraising lists. And a lot of their voters were turned off because of all of these aggressive tactics. So that's a warning sign for Democrats to make sure that we treat our supporters with respect, uh, particularly when it comes to text message fundraising and, and email fundraising, or else maybe that well will dry up one day, um, which we can't have happen, particularly on our side. Um, but you're right. It's Yeah, it's just been a major story this year. And, and unfortunately, there's no end in sight uh, that I can tell. It's really painful for people who you know, want to support a candidate and then lose complete control of their inbox, right? Yeah. It's just now overflowing with, with you know, pleas for cash. And and then we now know the cash doesn't go to where we think it's going to go half the time. Right. And, you know, the, believe it or not, the 2024 election has already begun. Um, uh, you know, Trump's campaign is sending out, I don't know, 20 emails a day asking for money. Uh, his potential competitors, like Mike Pompeo and Christy Nome, are, are already running ads like that. That campaign has already started. And, um, and it's really fascinating. You know, Trump's name has been the number one fundraising tool for committees like the Republican National Committee, the NRSC, like you mentioned earlier. Um, those committees are no longer allowed to use his name um, in their email fundraising appeals because they don't want to appear not neutral, right? So, um, mm. so you're going to see some some grassroots fundraising at the national Republican level dry up because they're no longer going to want to tie their email programs to to Donald Trump in particular. Um, well, super I, interesting. But like Wendy Rogers is a mm. state legislature in legislator in Arizona who like yep. three seconds after the governor's race was certified, the Maricopa County um, Republicans all certified unanimously that they were um, the election results went the way they went. She sent out an email to everybody saying, you know, she's going to lead the state legislature committee to fix the voting problem in Maricopa County, which there wasn't one. And she's now the biggest fundraiser out there in the state. Yep, I can believe it. You know, really firing people up with <laughs> false information um, and outrage bait and lies uh, is sometimes good for fundraising, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell somebody this house is on fire, they're going to believe you and freak out about it. So, yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, it's really depressing. But um, on a brighter note, you know, I was I was very happy with what happened in Arizona this cycle. Uh -huh. Really, really surprising a rebuke of extremism by the voters. I think Americans are. Um, look, we, we have ads directed at us 
24 hours a day. I mean, practically mm-hmm. beamed into our sleep. Americans are the most advertised to people in the world. We have an enormous consumer society. So in some sense, we're a little savvier about the stuff that people send us than maybe everyone thinks. Yeah, I'd like I to think, think, I think we, voters... we can defend ourselves a little bit. Yeah, I mean, my, my biggest takeaway from, from November 8th was that we don't give voters enough credit for their own agency, and particularly a lot of these like consultant types in D.C. Um, think that voters may be a little bit more gullible or swayable than they actually are, which I think is a good thing. You know, folks actually came out in droves uh, to rebuke a whole host of extremist candidates everywhere, um, which is really inspiring. Okay, so... Um... I don't really don't want to talk about the next election cycle yet. <laughs> yeah, we can stay away from um, that. But, but, but the, the, the human beings who developed expertise in digital campaigning and were working that cycle are now, um, they can't all find jobs in the municipal cycle. It's just not big enough. What do they do right. in their, what do they do in the off time? I mean, do, do campaigns, because they're valuable, find other work for them to keep them going? I mean, or do they go to work for corporate America, you know, advertising products? Well, I, I think there's a whole bunch of different things, right? There's, there's a whole host of progressive advocacy organizations on the left, many of which are based in, in D.C., um, that will be focused on taking that, that kind of talent pool and channeling it into effective issue advocacy over the next year or two. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. that's super great and valuable. You know, I've already heard rumblings of, of folks interviewing people for 2024 campaigns, believe it or not. So some, some people will just jump straight in. Um, and then others may start new digital consulting firms uh, or for-profit enterprises to uh, work on races like the Kentucky governor's race this year or, uh, yeah. or a whole host of state legislative races in Virginia this year um, or next year. Sorry. Um, so, yeah, there's no shortage of work to be done, uh, but you're right. There are a whole bunch of talented campaign operatives, particularly in the digital space um, that are now looking for jobs. Yep. It's going to be interesting. Going to be interesting. Well, as always, I, I really appreciate the, the time you give me and all of us who are listening to sort of make sure that we're not, uh, you know, completely ignorant about this world. I, I just should tell you before you go, when I first started this show, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so, that, that what people thought was Republicans will never lose because they understand modern campaigning. Cambridge Analytica, uh, they said, not knowing what that is. They got it. They know they have the secret sauce. Democrats don't have it. They'll take 20 years to catch up. None of that was true. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, you know, I, I kind of bought into some of those narratives back then, too. Uh, but yeah. you're right. Uh, this cycle was a wild ride and it really showed us Um uh, some very positive, encouraging signs uh, for campaigns on the left, um, which I hope we continue uh, to kind of own that space going forward. Yep. That is a great last word, Kyle. Um, I will talk to you again. If I don't talk to you before the year's out, happy holidays. And I, I wish you and uh, the best to start to 2023. Awesome. Same to you. Thank you so much, Edwin. You bet. All right, everybody, we're going to take a break. There's some news. Uh, There may not be news at the bottom of the hour, but when we come back, 
I have a just somebody you haven't heard from yet, a voice you should hear, a, a, a young woman who has done a remarkable thing in politics. And I will tell you about that coming up. Stay tuned. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back. I have a treat for all of you. Um, and it's important, you know, whether you live in Illinois or any other state, these are really interesting stories. Nabila Saeed is new to our show, new to elective office, and you're going to want to get to know her. She flipped a GOP state house district in northwest, sort of northwest of Chicago. This is traditionally a red part of the state. And she didn't flip a vacancy. She took out an incumbent. So I, I, I just think this is this is a remarkable thing. Uh, congratulations. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on. It's an honor. Now, the honor is mine. I mean, you talk about how you just did what you did, how you how you brought people together and, uh, and, and took out an incumbent in a traditionally Republican part of the state. Of course, it's very exciting to even reflect on it. We've been uh, campaigning for over a year by the time November 8th rolled around. And um, initially, when we launched our campaign, there were folks that were a bit hesitant about it, especially considering, like you mentioned, it's held, it was held previously by an incumbent Republican. It's a traditionally red area. But I think we approached it with a with a new perspective, and I would lend that to being a bit younger and my campaign manager being a bit younger and growing up in this community and seeing that people are looking for different leadership, um, leadership that listens to folks that live here and is willing to do the work and demonstrate that they're going to do the work to reflect their interests in Springfield. So, you know, we did we did what was most important, and we talked to people, knocked on their doors and gave them a reason to vote. Um, and I'm very excited that many people resonated with our message and, you know, the, the election demonstrated that. So um, there's a lot that you said that I like, but none more than the words hard work. You, 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 uh, you, you need to tell everybody because you ran an incredible door-to-door campaign. Like, like how many doors did you guys uh, knock on? So I knocked um, 20,000 doors myself, and um, our team knocked on over 55,000 doors altogether. Uh, So, yes, there was a lot of hard work, and it was a lot of, I would like to note, too, there were a lot of folks that had never been politically involved previously, um, but were, you know, wanted to get involved in the campaign, and they started knocking on doors, which is a very difficult ask in the first place. So to see so many people in the community want to, you know, care so much about the campaign to even knock on doors, that made that made the difference in this race. So I'm very grateful. Uh, and he, the, I've talked to um, people like Ben Wickler, um, Lavora Barnes. These are the heads of the state parties in Michigan and Wisconsin about the organizations they've built to and, and what, what they've discovered, and I think what you've proven, is that when you talk to your neighbors and you get them to get involved and you get them to start talking to each other, you aren't just getting somebody elected. You're not just getting yourself elected. You're actually engaged in the work of building stronger communities. Did you feel that? 
Yes, and I think um, at a time when politics feels kind of icky to many people with what happened in 2016, with the rise of far-right extremism, I think on the ground, people who traditionally identify, who used to identify with a single political party, but now because of what, what, with what happened with Roe v. Wade, what's happening with gun violence in our country, um, they just want to feel like their leaders are acting on issues that are affecting them. And I think that is what door-to-door, face-to-face conversations accomplish. It allows you to put aside some of the stuff that you're seeing on the news, um, on all these news channels, and actually talk to someone who's trying to represent you in the community or talk to someone on the team who's excited about a candidate or about a campaign. Um, and it it creates more personal relationships. So I think you're 100% right it's so important right now for us to work on building community and finding areas where we agree. And there are many folks that have voted for me that disagree with me on issues that are very important to me. Like I, w- I had folks that are not pro-choice, but voted for me because they're just glad I knocked on their door and I heard out their thoughts. Um, and they're willing to be excited about the things that we might agree on. Um, so it, it was interesting to even see those dynamics play out when I was outside the polling locations on Election Day and having these conversations. Uh, but it is 100 percent about building stronger communities and yeah. giving people a reason yeah. to vote. Yeah, people uh, generally loathe politics when they look at it on TV. But when they engage in it, when they do what you just did, they find um, such optimism in it and such a sense of belonging with their neighbors that they can actually make an optimism. It can make a difference, even if it's on the margins, make a difference in your life. Um, I, I think it's wondrous and I'm so grateful to you for having brought that level of engagement to part of our state. Thank you so much. I, I'm, um, I'm very grateful for the people that, we're willing to even hear me out at the doors. It's easy to not even open the doors. Everyone's got a ring camera these days. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And when you see someone with a campaign flyer in their hand, it's easy to ignore them. But there were many people that opened their doors that were willing to listen and people that stopped me on the streets. I, I actually rode around on an electric scooter <laughs> because, mm-hmm. you know, the more north you get here in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, the driveways are like a quarter mile long. And it just makes it easier to scooter right on up to someone's yep, yep. you know, front door and have that conversation. So people in the community started identifying me on the streets because they saw me rolling around on a, on a scooter. Um, so it, it was nice to even bring that level of engagement with folks and uh, bring that kind of excitement out. And I think our campaign, our team, the young people, the high school students that were knocking on doors, that were reaching out, figuring out ways to get involved, it's all, you know, it's all because of the hard work that so many folks did here on the ground. I, I just I love that for so many reasons. Um, I also think um, most operatives, political operatives, and many uh, uh, commentators on both sides or all sides on TV and elsewhere misunderstand how um, interesting, complicated, smart, ordinary Americans are. I mean, you are a young Muslim American. You wear a headscarf, right? You, you know, there are people who would say, oh, in a 
conservative part of a state like Illinois, this is like not possible. But but I think you were by and large welcomed by people. Yes, um, you know, lots of people. You're exactly spot on about that. I wouldn't say lots of people, but the few folks that, you know, did, when I was asking around opinions, you know, asking folks that have been involved in the space, if I should run for office, uh, many of them were, their face would drop because they could not understand why someone who, at my age, at that time I was 22 years old, now I'm 23, wearing, uh, you know, a hijab, a headscarf on my head, very visibly Muslim, Indian American, why I would think, why I would have maybe the, even the audacity to think that I could flip a Republican held seat uh, in a in a part of the state that's been traditionally conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that, though, you know, thankfully, I'm glad that I had lots of folks, including my own campaign manager, who's a good friend of mine, uh, who encouraged me and who told me to run. Um, so it helped me kind of drown out the other voices and focus on the actual plan of talking to voters and meeting them where they're at. But I think it goes to show that people like me are electable. And not only are we electable, but we're electable in difficult districts. So if you see candidates that are willing to put in the work, that have a plan, that have a desire to serve, you know, and I know there are many other factors, but try to try to take a few, you know, a few pauses before you ever discourage anyone, before you, um, you know, maybe think that it won't work out. Because I, I'd like to think that now our, our campaign and our race is an example of a time where it did work out. And if we continue to believe in candidates of color and young, young people in our country, um, we can flip even more difficult districts. But uh, I'm, very, I'm very excited about hopefully what kind of example this sets and you know, the folks that have been in similar positions like me who have uh, made difficult races winnable um, and how that has even inspired me. So I hope this adds on to that list. I, I think it absolutely does. It also extends a long history in the United States of groups of people coming in and saying, I can't run for office. I'm Jewish. I can't run for office. I'm Italian. I, you know, whatever it was at the moment, I can't run for office. I'm from Mexico. But, but it turns out, you know what? You can, you do, and you have all the stuff to contribute. And Americans want, I mean, we're not without our bigotry, God knows, but we, we love talented people who want to do the work. And government work is actually hard work. Yeah. And that, I think that should be the biggest, um, the biggest fact. Maybe, I mean, I don't want to say this, uh, about right, but like maybe one of the bigger factors when determining this quote unquote electability, uh, you know, when you're determining whether or not a candidate is electable, I hate even saying that, is trying to see how much work they're willing to put in. Because I think the amount of work that you put in a campaign is reflective of the amount of work that you'll put in for your constituents if you, you know, if you get the honor of being elected. And I think that is what people on the ground saw. So regardless of what political operatives might say, people have been, uh, and I know there are so many folks that have incredible expertise in campaigns and in this field, um, but I think that we are coming on to like this new age of campaigning and we are seeing so many folks who might have been traditionally considered unelectable Winning races, and you know, no, it's like fabulous. I'll even say, yeah, I'll even say, I used to internet Emily's list, 
but we used to talk mm-hmm. a lot about whether or not certain women would be electable and how dangerous that rhetoric is. So at a certain point, women were not even considered electable. Um, right. But as we as we move through time, I'm and as we move through election seasons, I'm excited to see groups that were considered unelectable. You know, we're not we're not having those conversations as much, I would like to think. And hopefully eventually we'll stop having those conversations that just exclude certain groups from being involved in running from off running for office. Yeah. And and you bring different perspective, different um, um experience with you that that just strengthens the whole um, when you get to Springfield um, legislating is is work and I mean I, I think of in uh, what Lauren Underwood has done in a very short time as a congressperson um, from Illinois just the ability to pick some issues and to really dig in and understand how legislation can impact people's lives for the better, and then to do the work to turn that, to write that legislation and get it passed. Um, you can change people's lives and you have, you, you know, but only if you do the work, right? There are a lot of people you're going to find in your colleagues who might not do the work. It's not universal that everybody's going to work as hard as you have. Um, so you could be a leader in Springfield. I, I, I think my first step even getting to Springfield is is learning because there are so many folks that have been doing this yep. work for decades, for a few years. And even in your first term, I think there are so many folks that are going on to their second term and have learned so much. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to just start at that point at the learning stage and trying to be as effective as possible in areas where I can be effective. And an important po- point you made about focusing on a certain uh, group of issues rather than trying to tackle it all. And this past month, you know, I had new member orientation earlier at, in late November. And since then, I've been meeting with different legislators, continuing to knock on doors, actually, and uh, continuing to talk to different organizations, stakeholders to figure out how exactly I could tackle the issues that I'm uh, most passionate about, which ended up actually being um, issues related to senior residents in our community, from property taxes mm. from, to prescription costs uh, to even, you know, looking at how we can be better at allowing for, you know, home care for folks that have Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, those have actually become some of the issues just from knocking on doors that I've become so passionate about. So I've been doing a lot of work to, become more knowledgeable in those subject matters so that hopefully when I get down to Springfield, um, I could, I could hit the ground running. So on top of everything else, you're going to be an intergenerational star. I think it's just fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Let me talk to you about um, something uh, a little different. Illinois has, I think about 350,000 Muslims. um, And until recently there were none in the state legislature. Now in this election, there are two. You, and you're half of them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is. I think Illinois has one of the largest per capita Muslim populations of any state. So, so your election is overdue um, from that perspective. But it puts a particular leadership burden on both you and on um, your colleague Abdel Nasser Rashid, who was also elected this cycle, because. There are going to be 350,000 people who are going to say they're going to look to you as 
the elected leadership of a community. What does that feel like? I think um, I think what's what me and both Abdul Nasser have been doing throughout our our campaigns is engaging a lot with the Muslim community in our state. And if we've learned anything, it's that everyone has an opinion, and they may not necessarily agree on some issues. They, there may be agreement, but there is a. Um, a, you know this fundamental belief in Islam that many that many Muslims have of just taking care of your neighbors, of your brothers and sisters, and um, you know when I'm talking about brothers and sisters, I'm talking about your entire community. Like we refer to folks mm-hmm. as brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. and um, and the fundamentals of like increasing access to healthcare, so no one has to go without you know access to treatment. Um, you know, prov- working to stop the opioid crisis, uh, expanding access to mental health care. There are many issues that are that fundamentally many Muslims agree upon, um, mm-hmm. if not all. And I think it's those issues where we're excited to to make progress on, even expanding access to, you know, more Muslim-related issues, like expanding access to halal food in uh, public schools, in uh, mm-hmm. halal and kosher foods. I know in this uh, in the previous legislative session, they allowed for Eid for students to take off on religious holidays, including Eid, but including many other holidays for different religious faith uh, communities mm-hmm. and faith groups. So there's a lot of work uh, that needs to be done, but there's been a lot of work that has been done. That's you know important to note also, like the Illinois Muslim Civic Coalition, different organizations that have been working to to bring together different Muslims of different backgrounds. Islam is an incredibly diverse religion, too. So you have many people that you're trying to build together and build a coalition so that we have a stronger voice in our state. So I think me and Abdul Nasser are excited about, you know, being being a strong ally, of course, to the Muslim community and being in the Muslim community and advocating for for the, the shared interests that we have. Yeah, and just the is, fact that you got elected... It's, it makes the, the whole community more visible to the rest mm-hmm. of the state, um, which is so long past due. Um, and I, I, again, I think it resounds entirely to the benefit of the state. Yes, I'd like to think so, too. And it's very, it's very exciting to, to be visibly Muslim, to wear a hijab on my head. You know, I started wearing it by my own choice, but there, there has never been a hijab wearing State legis- you know, state legislators. So it's exciting to, to create that representation. But Representative Teresa Ma is someone who I look up to very much so because she was the first Asian American in the, the state legislature, but she made sure she was not the last. And in a few short years, she has tremendously increased Asian American representation mm-hmm. um, because she's rallied behind candidates and campaigns that Maybe folks, you know, going back to the point of electability, maybe others wouldn't think that I was necessarily electable, but you know, Representative Teresa Mondit and Senator Ram Dilley-Bellum did. So having folks like that come behind candidates that, like myself, um, and I hope to do that for, for future candidates as well. And, um, you know, the, the really interesting thing about this conversation is you, um, you bring your own history. Um, people who share, well, I'm, I, you, the, at least the faith tradition. It's not one culture. It's many, many in Islam, but who share the, the faith tradition are proud to have you there. And yet, 
what you're proving to America is that you can do the great job of representing, I don't know, a, a, someone who is an evangelical Christian who lives, you know, in your district, that, that we don't have to elect people who are exactly like us to represent us. That's not the democracy we have. We can be really proud when people like us win, whether they represent us or not. But we have people who just work hard, who do the job. And that's what you showed in this campaign. Uh, yes, I sure I sure hope so, because I, I'll be honest, I don't look like a majority of the district, definitely, in the Northwest suburbs. So right. I have so many people who don't look like me, who might not be in the same, you know, same religion, same ethnic background, but still believe. And I think that's what makes our country so beautiful. It is that because yeah. we are a melting pot, you know, so many different folks, so many different backgrounds. And, um, and you know, I it, People like me are electable in districts that don't necessarily, because you're never going to find a district that looks majority like me. Um, but it's it's important that we still elect folks that don't necessarily look like their entire district, because then it would it would make our country a bit less diverse, <laughs> or our state legislature less diverse. Right, and that is actually a problem of gerrymandering that has impacted states um, where. People draw lines in order to uh, stamp out differences in districts. And that, that um, is, you know, politicians have picked their voters for a long time and it's not good for the country. Um, but to, you are proof that it doesn't have to be that way. Thank you. I, I'm excited about that. Okay. So um, you're going to go down there and you're going to learn other committees you want to be on. And, um, what are you most excited about? I know it's not the commute. Um, yes, definitely not the commute. I'm still trying to figure out if it's better for me to drive or to take the, you know, go into the city and take the train down. Um, I think what I said earlier about just learning, there is so much learning to do. Um, and thankfully, you know, it's, it's not been that long since I've been in college, so I'm <laughs> familiar mm-hmm. with how to do it well. But um I think there are so many incredible people that are there. And when I walked onto the house floor, it felt like I was pinching myself because there's so many people that I look up to that I'm so excited to, to learn from. So continuing to have those conversations, talking to folks that are, that are specialized in certain issues and learning from them. And th- that is what's very, very exciting to me. So I'm still trying to figure out, you know, which committees I would be, which uh, committees I would be most effective mm-hmm. in, um, which ones I would be important for our community and my district. Um, and, but having those conversations is the first step. So I'm talking to anyone and everyone. I just had a very interesting conversation about property taxes that, you know, I didn't think coming into this election, that would be something that I just want to learn endlessly about. But here we are. <laughs> Well, if you can find ways to support uh, local government across this state with something other than property tax revenue, you will be uh, a hero. Uh, that is a that is a that is a that is a phenomena that unites everyone in this state. <laughs> the property taxes we rely on them a lot in Illinois. Yes, we do. <laughs> so um, I know this from my own life, entering a, a different kind of legislature as a young person. I think I was your age. Um, in spending time, the, the legislators themselves, the other seat holders, 
are very diverse, more diverse than anything you've ever encountered in the community that you live. Um, and they represent, of course, every part of this state. Just learning about the state through their eyes and their communities through their eyes is one of the most wonderful um, experiences. And I hope that you find it fascinating and fulfilling. I feel like I already am. So I'm excited to just keep doing it. Um, but yes, mm-hmm. definitely feeling very grateful that I'm even in this position um, to learn from all these incredible folks that have done so much work for our state and are continuing to do so much work with, for our state and to do that work alongside them. It's, it's an honor of a lifetime. Uh, well, uh, Representative Saeed, um, as a property tax paying, you know, nearly senior, I am deeply grateful to have you down there. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, and uh, I hope you will come back sometime in the new year to talk about, you know, all the things that you've learned and whether uh uh, you know, it's not a wide-eyed experience anymore that you've seen, you know, you've suddenly become a crusty old, uh, you know, hardened legislator. Uh, if, if there's any of that transition, you know, or you fought it off, I'd love to hear about it. Well, I would love to be back. And thank you so much for having me on today. I really appreciated the conversation and I'm excited to get to work. All right, everybody, that is one of the newest uh, legislators in Illinois, Nabila Saeed, who worked like every candidate should, but almost none do, knocked on unbelievable number of doors, and those doors were far away, and still managed uh, to unite a district um, that, you know, in a way that is just inspiring. She's got a great future. Um, Stay tuned. We're going to take a break for the news. And when we come back, Yasmin Rajdi, the executive director of Swing Left, is going to join us. We have to talk about what happened and what is about to happen. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, everybody, we are back. And I told you uh, I'd be joined by... um, Yasmin Rajdi of Swing Left, but um, I am not uh, being joined by her right now. Um, So I'd like to hear from you at 773-763-9278. And this week, uh, as I started the show, I'm kind of interested in accountability. You know, what makes for political accountability? What? When do you think we actually have it? And, you know, we can talk about everything from – you know, will Trump ever be held accountable to the kind of accountability you heard about in the way that our last guest, um, Nabila Saeed, campaigned and talks to voters. I just think it's a really interesting um, uh, uh, conversation, really. And I'm quite convinced that we are going to have accountability in our uh, politics, that we have it. It's just uh, been sidelined a little bit as we work our way uh through the courts, at least in these big questions. Um, uh, but guys like John Eastman, I think they're all going to jail. It's kind of, kind of fun to think about. Anyway, what do you think? 773-763-9278. Mm. And 
I also, I'm going to just, because I have a moment here where uh, a caller has not, we haven't found each other. I, I have been paying attention to the World Cup, which I find fascinating. And, you know, Americans are glued to a game that goes nothing, nothing or nil, nil, as they say, and they like it. And I'm kind of interested in, you know, your thoughts about that. I, it's a sort of cultural change. Um, I, I uh, looked at my email in the first segment, something I don't often do, but it was beeping at me and I looked and it was three different fundraising appeals from candidates that just popped up. And you heard me ask um, uh, Kyle Farp about that. Like, what is it really true that if you donate to one candidate, your lists just go and you, you know, um, so if any of you has sort of a mastered a way to unsubscribe successfully from these things, I'd like to know that too, because I, you know, I want to donate to who I want to donate to. I want to be part of the campaigns I want to be part of, but I then don't want to have an email account that's not usable. And I don't know if you feel that way as well. Anyway, those are the things that are on my mind. And again, I want to hear from you at 773-763-9278. We have um, we have um, some in international stuff I'm also following. And I don't know, you know, we don't spend enough time on this show really talking about uh, international news. But uh, President Biden is sort of focusing on Asia in a really interesting way and um, and focusing on Africa and, and urging uh, the inclusion of the African Union in the G20. And I thought that was, um, you know, enormously important because the decisions that get, get made there, uh, often the impact of those decisions is felt um, in Africa. And, you know, the only voice representing the whole continent was South Africa for a long time. And I just think um, it's pretty great that we are now figuring out that we should be advocating for uh, uh pan-African voice in the G20. And the last story that I followed that I really didn't think I wanted to talk about at the beginning of the show, um, because I'm not sure that I care, is uh, Christian Cinemas uh, raising her hand and telling everybody, you know what, I'm not really a Democrat. Oh, shock of shocks, I'm not really a Democrat. Um, I think most people knew that. Um, I'm happy she's going to caucus with the Democrats as uh Angus King, an independent, does as Bernie Sanders, an independent does. Um, so I'm happy about that. But I think it's I think that's a that's a fair thing. Um, all right. So I was taking your calls at seven, seven, three, seven, six, three, nine, two, seven, eight. But now that you've called, I have to ask you to pause uh, because um, I'm joined by. Because I'm going to be joined now by Yasmin Rajdi, who I think you all know. She's been here before. Um, she runs an organization called Swing Left. We've talked about that before. But um, Yasmin, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Edwin. I'm so excited to dive into so much that's happened since our last conversation. So start with this and remind everyone listening about Swing Left. What's the organization and what does it do? So thank you so much, Edwin. Um, so Swing Left for folks who are unfamiliar is uh, the largest year-round organizing network in the country. Uh, we organize volunteers to have uh, an impact in the closest elections 
both at the federal and the state level all across the country by taking the highest impact actions, whether that's knocking on doors, making calls, sending texts or writing letters. Uh, We funnel them to make sure they're taking those high impact actions in the places where they can shift the balance of power at the federal or at the state level. Okay, and this uh, turned out to be a delightful cycle for us Uh, for so many reasons. Um, Have you had time to yet dive into the data to see how effective your efforts were? What was most effective? What do you want to work on to be more effective in the next cycle? Yeah, you know, we're um, we're really, really proud. I know, I feel like you were one of the few people who shared my optimism about this midterm cycle early on. It felt very doom mm-hmm. gloom out in the world, but um, I think you saw, um, as we and our volunteers did, a real opportunity. And I think in our last conversation, I mentioned that um, a lot of our volunteers were uh, taking actions uh, at or exceeding 2018 levels, and that's something that we were really proud of and ended up being true in our final numbers. So um, our volunteers and donors um, at the grassroots level raised $11 million uh, for campaigns and for voting rights and abortion organizations. They wrote 5.6 million letters to voters, um, and this is mostly to young voters, voters of color, to encourage them to write, uh, excuse me, to encourage them uh, to get out and vote. Over a million of those letters were in Georgia just in this past final stretch uh, for the runoff election. Uh, They made 1.4 million phone calls to voters in swing districts, uh, and they knocked on uh, over 500,000 doors in those swing districts. So, you know, I I say the numbers sort of line by line because I think it's really important, um, and I know we're going to get into some of the lessons here, um, but, you know, 2018 felt like, Uh, A lot of people kind of look at it as a flash in the pan, a year where volunteers really stood up, um, you know, were fired up to to win back the House and to fight Donald Trump by having that line of defense. And a lot of folks have sort of uh, moved on psychologically from the power of organizing. And what we're seeing this cycle, uh, what we saw this cycle, excuse me, is that the volunteers and the grassroots leaders who continued to really fight uh, on on the front lines of these swing districts, made the difference. Um, And we can get into some of the the specific districts where we are really confident that the reason reason why we won is because of a field margin. But um, I'll just name one such example because it's right around uh, the corner from you, which is the reason why we have a Democratic trifecta now in Michigan, which is a huge deal, um, is thanks to 403 votes in one Senate seat that won that chamber. Uh, that's 0.009% of all of the votes for Senate candidates in the state. Um, and then 765 votes in just one Senate seat that won the chamber. And that's 0.02% of total, um, excuse me, house, uh, house seat, um, uh, 0.02% of total house votes. And that's just huge for me. You know, we're talking about like if volunteers, if volunteers had not gone out to support those state candidates in a state like Michigan, we would not have a democratic trifecta. That is, thanks not just to swing up volunteers, but the ecosystem of volunteers that did so much. So I'm just feeling really proud and really fired up. Well, we have a special election coming in Wisconsin that is going to determine right. whether the Republicans have a veto-proof majority uh, in That's- in the legislature, and that is going that is going to be a very close election and. 
organizing is going to mean everything. That's exactly right. And I think I'm so glad you brought up Wisconsin because that's another one of these states where um, it is, uh, there is no way that one could argue that organizing didn't make the difference because um, the reason Democrats blocked the Wisconsin Assembly Republican Party from having uh, a supermajority is thanks to 2,993 votes in just four seats. I mean, that's just like a few weeks of really good organizing can get that many votes. Um, and so um, I just I really hope that um, that your listeners feel uh, empowered this election to remember that going out and doing the small bit that they can can you know change just a few votes and getting up to 2,900 votes is not that much. And in a place like Wisconsin, that's not just important for the immediate of what we've already done, but as you said, that Supreme Court election is going to be really, really uh, close, and not that many people vote in these special elections. And so I hope that folks are um, are taking some rest for the holidays, but then ready to you know fire back in because that election is coming up in April, and we're going to be all in for it. Right. As when you mentioned Supreme Court, there are two two elections in Wisconsin that everybody needs to know about. The Supreme Court election, enormously important, and a special election uh, in the legislature. So both of them are going to be close. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. Um, I'm, you know, sort of profoundly worried about um, the... uh, the, the, partly it's the way social media works. Partly it's the way political operatives work. But I'm, uh-huh. I'm very worried about efforts to divide America by race, by religion. Um, you know, I, I look at the, the way uh, the Republicans are using the rescue of Brittany Griner, right? Uh-huh. Uh, we, brought, we, we made a trade. We got um, an American home from a Russian prison. In any other moment, we would cheer and celebrate. And instead, um, the right wing is saying, well, how come you picked a black gay woman who hates America to bring her home and left, you know, white man in in jail in Russia? Um, Something that was, you know, the the administration is trying to bring everybody home. You bring home who you can. You make the trades you must to do it. Um, And instead of celebrating, they're doing this awful thing. And I worry about that. And and this is, a, you know, I, people are proud of their heritage. They're proud of who they are. And that is absolutely um, important and wonderful. The opposite side of that, though, um, is when you denigrate other people. And since mm-hmm. Kevin Phillips first enticed the GOP to campaign, to make resentment the core of building majority, and he started to do that in the Republican Party in the 70s, our politics has grown more divisive uh, than unifying. How does, and I have some thoughts on this, but I want to hear your thoughts. How does grassroots campaigning be an antidote to that? How does bringing people together to go knock on doors and talk to their neighbors help uh, help us move past that? You know, it's, it's such a, um, it's an important both topic and question um, that I hope that we can spend a lot of time on over the next few months uh, discussing, because I think it's it's not, you know, an issue limited to any one moment. The Brittany Griner example is a powerful one, but there's dozens more that we could even be talking about. And yep. to me, it's just, you know, I, I think we've talked about similar themes before of just like, people need to get off their computers, not permanently, just for the afternoon 
and go and talk to other humans face to face and in person. And I know that's been really hard uh, with COVID, with, you know, everything that's been going on. And also, frankly, with how hard people are working right now and how tough things are with childcare and, and all the rest. But I really, I, I think I'm, I'm old school in this way, which is I think that um, sometimes we, we overcomplicate what some of the solutions are to something as difficult and intractable as polarization. And actually talking to people is, um, you know, face-to-face and not sleeping on and giving up on persuasion, um, I think matters a lot. Uh, and that matters from a, you know, tactical perspective of how do we uh, make sure that we are bringing Republicans and independents onto our side. But even in the, in the bigger picture, the more esoteric sort of how do we heal our very fractured country, I think it's as important for that. Um, one of the stats that I was most uh, sort of moved by uh, this cycle was looking at the difference in our, um, you know, which of our volunteers from 2018 stuck around this cycle um, and which didn't. And the, the number that really stunned me was that people who are a part of swing left groups, groups that meet up in person, groups that get together, groups that even during, you know, the, the toughness of the pandemic were, you know, they were still connecting in some way. Those folks were four times more likely to be involved this year than people who were volunteering as individuals. And I think that tells me something, um, you know, that, that I think is actually related to this broader point about polarization, which is people need connection, right? People need, and that is what keeps them involved in the civic process. It's what keeps them involved and motivated, even in the moments that are really tough for our democracy. And it's also, I think, rebuilding that community fabric does so much for being able to actually heal a lot of the ways that people have sort of caricaturized the other side. And I'm not saying that, you know, every civic institution is going to be a blend of far-right extremists and, and progressives. I don't, this is not like a Pollyanna comment, but I do think returning to real small-D democratic habits, the mores and habits of, of public life that, you know, Jatopo wrote about in, in the earliest days of our American democracy as being so important. I don't think that we should be sleeping on those. I think those are fundamental building blocks to be able to, to move past some of this. Um, and then just one last point on the, you know, that is long-term work. That is deep long-term work. And that's why at Swing Left we are year-round long-term, you know, small-D democracy building. But in the immediate term, I think what's also really important to remember that this election was a huge, huge uh, referendum on the far-right MAGA Republicans all across the country. The anti-democratic people, the election deniers, we still have some work to do, but, you know, people like Carrie Lake in Arizona, who were going to be blockers to our ability to have a free and fair election in 2024, they lost. So I think it's also important, especially, you know, as we hear a lot of noise online and a lot of real anger and polarization online, A, we got to get off the computer and talk to each other. B, we've got to sort of rebuild that civic fabric, rebuild those community connections. And C, we've got to remember that those extreme folks, are the minority. And we really, there most Americans, uh, even if they don't know that much about people different from them, there is an openness somewhere in them uh, that we can tap into. And most people are not as extreme as, as frankly, as a lot of the Republicans that are in elected office right now. So, so I love that. I loved all of that answer. I had Tocqueville in mind when I asked, um, but I also had um, the American sociologist, uh, Robert Putnam, who wrote, I think, mm-hmm. 20 some years ago now, a, a mm-hmm. book called Bowling Alone. 
in each case, he sort of talked about America was knitted together by many opportunities of community building, like bowling leagues that disappeared. Right. Um, And 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 I think the. Uh, the the right wing through ch- organizing in churches and then um, subsequently the left organizing in a million different ways, um, yeah. including the stuff that you do, is an is a is a leave aside everything about who wins and who loses an election um, mm-hmm. is just in itself a, 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 a magic tonic. To our society, it's a very important part of community building that we have, as you said, we've neglected for a long time. But I see it coming back in ways that are um, so salubrious for us. Absolutely, you know, we had a my first job out of college, as you know, was um, on the 2008 Obama campaign, and that was uh, formative in many ways, including that one of the real mottos that we learned day one, and that we reminded everyone training after training after training who, who joined us as organizers was, um, you know, people walk into a field office, they sign up to volunteer because of Obama, they're inspired by him, but they come back because of the other volunteers and the organizers that they meet. They don't return based on, you know, a concept. And so if they are not building real relationships, if they're not seeing that they can, you know, make a real difference and they don't have um, kind of some connectivity then it's just a one-time thing. And I think something that we um, are wrestling with for the long-term at Swing Left is how do you build the kinds of volunteer experiences and the kind of authentic community in volunteer groups? And I don't think this is just Swing Left, by the way. I think Indivisible does some amazing work on this, too. I think some labor unions do amazing work on this, too. As you said, this is that I think Putnam is right to talk about the importance of rebuilding institutions. And, And we're in a moment of deep skepticism of institutions. So it's okay for those institutions to be brand new and to be, you know, bottom up. Um, but I do think that that is um, absent those, um, the again, the kind of mores and habits of public life are not built. Even, you know, small things like you learn how to, in a small group of people, no matter how much you like those people, there are arguments about how to have an, how to build an agenda. How do you, you know, should the meeting be one hour? Should it be an hour and 30 minutes? Whatever the case may be. When you're in a congregation, when you're in a union, when you're on a PTA board, you learn how to negotiate on those things. You learn how to disagree. Uh, or a family vacation. I mean, <laughs> Family vacations. Families are a fundamental institution. But even that, I mean, I think Putnam talks about this, has talked about this at length even since he wrote Bowling Alone, which is the institutionalization in America includes people being more and more disconnected from their families. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you, you learn to negotiate when you're a part of a family or part of a community. And I think those are as important as figuring out how to fight, you know, what Democrat, uh, excuse me, what Republicans are doing in legislatures is also how to rebuild our small D democracy. Yeah. So healthy for the country. And this is not left, right politics. This is social fabric building that now it happens on our side that we're building it and we have some policies that we care about. Um, uh, but it all, but the, the policy choices and the community building go together and it's an antidote for a feeling that politics is a transaction. And that's the, that's the, I show up once I vote for you, you give me this. And it's not, exactly it's a, right. it's a constant, it's not a transaction, it's a community and you have to build it. Totally. It's a habit and it's an action. You know, I, I, another 
Um, writer that I think is is so smart on this is Peter Scotchpole, who's a, a contemporary of, mm-hmm. of Putnam. Yep. And um, in the, I don't know if you've read that, the opening chapter of her book, Diminishing Democracy, she describes, she's a sociologist, as you know, and she, she's walking through a graveyard in, in Maine with her husband, and she's walking through and seeing all these old, old, old graves, and she sees one for one of President Lincoln's pallbearers. And she's looking at this grave, and she's seeing it's his name, his dates of life, and then about five or six different civic organizations that he was a part of. And she starts thinking of herself and speaking with her husband. She's like, I would never put, you know, the American Sociological Review, an an institution I care a lot about, I would never put that on my gravestone. And she gets Mm -hmm. into a a deep, um, you know, analysis of what is the way that we engage with the organizations that we deeply care about. For many of us, it's just signing an online petition and then moving on with our lives. These are not places where we are, um, again, sort of, be it we are leaders uh, as a part of building what that organization is. And at Swing Left, we really think that what our groups are is our magic superpower. It's not just because they take more actions and talk to more voters. It's because they're actually rebuilding that fabric um, and are building the kind of an institution and kind of organization that's more meaningful than, again, signing a petition and moving on with their days. Yep. And, and I'm finding in... Well, I'll just use the two examples I know best, Michigan and Wisconsin. The Democratic mm-hmm. parties that are being built in those states are, are mm. differ from the Democratic parties totally. of the past. Um, totally. Not that unions are still important, very important and honored partners in this, but the party isn't relying only on union organizing and big city, you know, machine politics. Instead, they're doing the hard work of community building that you're talking about, creating multiple on-ramps for people to get involved, and then the community stickiness that says, we're looking out for you. If you want to get involved, here's what you can do. Come back tomorrow or next week. The door's open. We want you back. And building that neighbor-to-neighbor stuff, which then surfaces all kinds of other issues and opportunities. Oh, totally. You know, there's a problem over here we didn't even know about. We can work on together. It's just, it's um, it's such a strength of this country when we do it well. Totally. You know, I, I really, I think it's a really important point you're bringing up. And I think two of the, by far, two of the strongest state parties in the country are exactly who you mentioned, Michigan and Wisconsin. And that's mm-hmm. because the two party EDs, Lavora Barnes and Ben Wickler of Michigan and Wisconsin, respectively, they're organizers. They understand, you know, as you, as you, exactly as you're alluding to, they understand that the work of building power, whether at the state or at the federal level, it's long-term work, it is non-transactional work, and it's work that needs to be built with, you know, the people that are most impacted at the center. And they are, both, in both cases, rebuilding the sort of the institutions and the, um, the fabric of their state you know, bit by bit, um, and they're investing for the long term, and their incentives yeah. are for the long term. And that's something, yeah. you know, we talk about a lot at Swing Left. We do a lot of funding of those, those 11 million of grassroots dollars um, that we raise for campaigns and for organizations. A lot of that goes to, to parties uh, and to caucuses and to the mm-hmm. organizations that work well with those parties and caucuses. And we ask our the state party EDs, who are the organizations doing voting rights work on the ground or doing GOTV work on the ground that are really, really effective, that are trusted messengers in their communities? And we ask folks on the ground the same thing. And we invest in those because 
there, you know, it, it, this is not that campaigns don't, you know, many campaigns have some of the top talent really believe in this stuff. Their incentive structure is all to just build an operation over a few months and then to disappear. And then, you know, the staff move around. And that is not a knock on any of the staff. It's just the way that these campaigns work. So having state party EVs like Labora and like Ben, who are building with a sort of generational mindset, um, I think is is critical and it's, it's in too few states. And so I think the more that we are doing that long-term rebuilding work and incentivizing donors uh, and volunteers to really be a part of that process, uh, I think the better off we'll be. Yeah. And, and frankly, it's not a, a new idea. Republicans have been doing this for a long time. <laughs> this, is, this has been their playbook for the, long, for, for the long run, and we just need to get into that long game as well. Yeah, and I think, it, you know, it's a way of certainly how you win elections, um, but well beyond elections, it's how you build society. And um, mm-hmm. I'm just I'm so proud of the work that you've done that uh, Lavora and Ben have done. But lots of people around the country have raised their hands and said, I'm not sitting on the sidelines. This isn't a transaction. It's my community. It's my neighborhood. These are my right. my brothers and sisters. And you know what? We can't put our heads down and let, you know, cynicism and despair uh, determine who we are and what we do, which was the that's plan on the other side. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, no. And again, so I think predict for me going forward, just for a minute, yeah. since we've just had this lovely yeah. conversation, how happy will America be when the, when, when, after 800 ballots, the Republicans figure out who they want to run the House, and then they spend their entire time ignoring the actual challenges the country faces, missing the opportunities that are right in front of us, all to talk about Hunter Biden for the next two years. Unless they have, they still have some things about Hillary they haven't mentioned. I mean, I, totally. Like, totally. Seriously, uh, Americans, are. I think we're done. Totally. 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 And, you know, I, I think one of my uh, my favorite uh, quotes that I've read recently was from uh, one of the economists at the American Enterprise Institute. This was in the peak mm-hmm. of you know, Republicans going hard on Democrats about how Democrats don't care about the economy and Democrats don't do anything on inflation and Democrats and Democrats that. And you and I know exactly, as you said, that what Republicans were really trying to do was just to, to, to get control in order to have, you know, uh, hearing number 15 million on Hunter Biden uh, and the American Enterprise Institute, which, as you know, conservative, libertarian, yeah. very aligned with the Republican Party. One of their economists came out and said, I reviewed the plans uh, that Republicans have to fight inflation. Not one of them is going to do anything to combat inflation in 2023. And I think that just reveals it's not just that they are full of distractions once they are, you know, um, uh, once they have the control of the committees in the House, et cetera. Um, but it's also in their policy plans. And so I think the more that we are reaching voters to, to, to spread the word about not, what, not just what Democrats have done in the past tense, although I think that's really, really important, but also to make sure that folks are totally aware that Republicans don't have a plan. Republicans are really good at very scary attack ads that are completely disconnected from reality. And so the more that we're doing that face-to-face, person-to-person, call-by-call outreach Mm -hmm. to make sure folks know that that's just a bunch of BS, frankly, um, then I think the better off we'll be. Um, We obviously did that well this cycle, but we've got to keep doing that cycle after cycle um, uh, because, as you said, people are, are done with this stuff. 
Yeah. Well, uh, as always, it is fun catching up. Uh, you know, this is a local Chicago, small, little, like radio broadcast about politics. It happens to go out on the Internet, happens to have a lot of people paying attention. But where else are you going to get Alexis to total fetus up call and and um, Robert Portman in one conversation amongst people who are actually just doing political organizing. Come on, guys, you're getting your money's worth on this show. <laughs> exactly, Edwin. It's always such a pleasure to be on with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the work that you're doing, the level of conversation that you have on the show, um, and excited to continue it. We're going to have more and more and more to debrief uh, because there's just so much work happening and excited to celebrate it together and to talk about the challenges ahead. All right. Between now and when we next speak, have a lovely holiday and a great start likewise. to 2023. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Care. I hope you and your family get some rest uh, and then we'll be right back at it in 2023. You bet. All right, everybody. Thank that you. was Yasmin Rashdi, executive director of Swing Left. We're going to take a break. When I come back, I didn't mean to interrupt you before, 773-763-9278. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Welcome back. Uh, This is, you know, uh, your time, not mine, 773-763-9278. And I teed up a bunch of conversations earlier um, from the community building efforts that we just talked about with Yasmin to the enormous uh, uh, power of young people getting involved in politics um, that Nabila Saeed so embodies. There's a bunch of international stuff that I'm always interested that we don't get to talk about enough here. And, you know, um, uh, (laughs) and then the usual nonsense. Steve, what's on your mind today? Uh, yes, thank you for taking my call. And I, I did think that your previous guest raised an interesting point. Uh, I've been a member of the American Political Science Association for some 30 years, but I would never think that someone would put that on my gravestone. You know, uh, it's just not something that you even consider. So it, 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 it is interesting in the way that I, I would argue that both Americans are now both connected and disconnected. They're, they're more connected in terms of being online and being able to access information and interact with people, but they're disconnected from their local communities in, in a very dangerous way. And, and, and what I mean by that is that they're, they're connected in that it's an exercise in confirmation bias. They can, if you if you are looking for hate. And, and that's what fuels your interests. And you, then there, someone is going to give you, and there, there's going to be an algorithm which gives you as much of that as you want. And then you're finding other people who think like you. And, of course, every, everyone there is, is prepared to tell you that all the credible institutions like journalism and the research and scholarly communities and so forth, those are not to be trusted any longer. It's crazy people on the Internet and on your favorite sites. And, and many of these people have been banned from some of the more mainstream places. So then, you know, it's these deep web uh, kinds of sites that these people are finding this craziness. And they're finding other p- crazy people like themselves, and they're creating communities. Because that's where January 6th came from. These people organized online, and, and then they came together to, into to the Capitol. And that, that's the problem, is that these people are not involved in their local communities, but they are involved with each other. They spend all day, some of them. You know, in these in these chat rooms and in the uh, uh, blogging and all, and all these other places, you know, listening to this stuff that's just so ridiculous, ridiculous and antithetical to our uh, the institutions that built this country and our democracy. And I, and, and it's a, and it's dangerous. I'm not for silencing people, but I, I do think that we need some sort of an effort to make 
people more literate about being online and what is credible and what is not credible. And unfortunately, I don't think that distinction exists for a lot of people who don't understand it. Yeah, I, they also meet in person. I There's militia training, you know. Um, but your, your point, Steve, is well taken, you know, but it's an old American uh, 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 problem. I mean, wasn't it P.T. Barnum who said there's a sucker born every minute? Um, oh, yeah, you know, Americans, right? I mean, p- pitching nonsense to Americans goes way back. And mostly we have risen above it. We've had the good sense. And building strong communities is one of the greatest defenses against it. And I'm just in awe of people on the Democratic side who are finally doing the hard work of community building as opposed to transactional and politics. I, and, to and, and I also wanted to make the point. And I also wanted to make the point, and I, I tuned in a bit late, but I, I do think that we were at the precipice, and I think we've, we've kind of pulled back from that. I think that the last few elections of Demons, uh, Americans have said quite clearly, and that, you know, I'm willing to vote for this guy for senator, this guy for governor, but you know what? The crazy guy at the top I'm not willing to support. And, and, and that's why so many Trump-backed candidates lost. And I think, again, Americans are starting to sort of return to, uh, to uh, thinking that says, you know what, two healthy parties is a good thing, and we need diversity of thought in this country. But there is a line that we, could, we have crossed, and we don't want to be there any longer. And I think a lot of Republicans are starting to come back to sanity. Now, it's not saying that the Trumpian movement is dead. It's not saying that Donald Trump defines it. At this point, he's just sort of a caricature of himself. But uh, but I do think that we we stepped away from the, the edge of that cliff in many ways. All right, Steve. Th- thank you for that. Thank Always you. interesting. Have a have a good afternoon, a good weekend. Jim, what's on your mind today? Uh, hi, Edwin. How are you? I was just uh, watching a program where Kennedy uh, is pushed into a corner by uh, Billy Graham and uh, Norman Vincent Poole. All the presidents in the country are. You know, he's a papist. We'll never elect a papist, Al Smith in 1929. Anyway, he reads it in the, in the Washington Post and says, well, I have to do something about this. So he, he goes down and addresses the Houston Protestant ministers. Uh, there's, uh, you know, 50,000 of them in the crowd. He said, well, we, the three religions he mentions is uh, Protestantism, Catholicism, and Judaism. And he said, none of them have a place in our political realm of politics. All right, now, what has happened since then? I don't know. That's 1960. Now, how in God's name did the uh, the Catholics, the Republican Catholics, get in bed with these evangelists is beyond me. I have no idea how that happens. But anyway, uh, because this country has been anti-Catholic since its inception, and anti-Judaism. I, a Catholic and a Jew has a very difficult time getting elected president of the United States. And uh, uh, what kills me is how they, you know, uh, this Supreme Court is off the rails with this uh, idea of religion and their political decisions. It's just uh, it's antithetical of anything American. And you know that, and I know that. Well, there's nothing we can do about it. But anyway, <laughs> just keep voting Democrat. Anyway, thanks for the thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, brother. Of Have course, of course. You too. Well, that's interesting. Um, uh, Brian, I think you're next. Hello, Evelyn. Hope you're doing well. And uh, the reason I'm calling is uh, I have a very uh, sad report I heard early this morning. Uh, 
<clears throat> before I uh, went to bed. Uh, in Iran, uh, they uh, executed uh, this, uh, hung this young man who uh, for protesting, and uh, um, the uh, and they expect to hang more. Uh, it started uh, with the uh, so-called quote morality police, and uh, I'm sure you know the story of uh, the woman who was killed uh, there. Uh, and uh, and now it's spread uh, the protest uh, for economic reasons, and uh, we may very well see a uh, revolt against this uh, dictatorship uh, in Iran, the, and uh, hopefully uh, a restoration of a democracy, which they did have in 1953 under uh, Mosharek uh, until the... Uh, CIA got involved and uh, put in the Shah and his uh, evil secret police, Salak, responsible for killing about 100,000 of their own people. Uh, hopefully, uh, uh, well, uh, they do uh, have a, a democratic reform in Iran, and I relate this to the United States because uh, we see here uh, we are losing, um, as you um outlined very well. We, we uh, are in danger of losing more and more of our constitutional rights, uh, if not our constitution at some point. And I know we have the holidays coming up and people will be uh, uh, focused on that. But uh, I think uh, we uh, should bear in mind, uh, keep uh, politics in our minds because uh, uh, you know, with the Supreme Court, and uh, we, we just don't know what developments are going to happen. And we have to keep in mind also that uh, in this country, we still have the right to peacefully march. Uh, as in the 60s, there were marches, civil rights marches, anti-Vietnam war marches, and uh, civil disobedience, if necessary. It's a democracy. It's not a dictatorship mm -hmm. we're living in. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, as we approach the holidays, it is certainly true that the challenges in front of us are big and ongoing, and um, I think we'll be up for them. But I hope we'll take the time, everyone, for a little bit of gratitude. And I think that, um, you know, for the people we love, but, you know, for our fellow citizens who've done so much in this past election cycle and, and, and beyond, not just about elections. I mean, I, I think a little bit of gratitude goes a long way towards inoculating us against the cynicism and the pessimism that is the breeding ground of all of this. Uh, uh, well, we should, excuse me, yes, I think we should be very happy. Uh, uh, we did not get the uh, Republican tidal wave. Uh, it was just a trickle. And uh, uh, those who uh, were active, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 we should be happy with uh, de uh, developments, uh, uh, but uh, uh, we c we shouldn't relax either. Is what I'm trying to say. Yep, you're absolutely right. Eternally vigilant, and we are going to need it because we are not out of the woods. Well, thank you, Brian, as always. And if I don't talk to you, you have a good holiday season and a happy new year. And, and we'll talk. Same to you, Edwin. Thank yeah. you. You're very welcome, Paul. You're next, uh, and. Uh, what's on your mind? Well, I'm disturbed at how enthusiastically uh, three justices on the court uh, support this independent legislature's idea in the um, 
Moore versus Harper case, uh, Clarence Thomas and Alito and Neil Gorsuch. I'm a little surprised that Gorsuch, I guess I shouldn't be, but um, it, it's outrageous, ridiculous to think that this procedural measure described in the Constitution in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, that each state shall appoint as the legislature thereof, in the manner of the legislature thereof, shall decide a number of electors, does not, it, it's outrageous. It's, it's completely anti-federalist to think that this would confer a special power upon the legislature in that state such that the courts would be undermined, that that, that the Supreme Court would undermine state courts is would be completely abhorrent to the founders. Because even though we call the Supreme Court the highest court in the land, they will always defer to state courts wherever possible. And so even if the legislature, the legislature is proceeding in a manner that is uh, contrary to their state constitution, that's okay. We should give them an independent, let them operate independently simply because the constitution has to say that somebody will submit the, the electors. Uh, you know, it, it just says the legislature, not the governor, not the court. But I understand, I mean, there are a number of abstention doctrines in the court which I don't think this court uh, really gives a, a flying whatever about, but um, I can see why they, obviously why they took up the case, why why they, four of them at least, decided to take it up, because it does refer to a particular clause of the Constitution. Yeah, okay. But that they would, and I think there's a good possibility that they will <laughs> rule in favor of the North Carolina State Legislature, because... I, here's the dynamic on the court that I see is that John Roberts is being bullied. He's whatever control of the court, the chief justice might have, he doesn't have it. He's lost any influence on the court. And I think three of our justices in uh, Sotomayor Kagan and um, uh, justice um, Brown Jackson will vote in dissent. What I see of the three Thomas Gorsuch and Alito We'll probably drag along Kavanaugh and Tony Barrett. And I just don't think that John Roberts wants to, he wants, doesn't want to appear like he's voting on the losing side because it will look like he's lost control. And so I think there's another 6 3 in store for us that they will do this. And this is going to have wreak havoc on voting rights in America. And it's, I don't know what they think they're going to accomplish by disenfranchising people and causing a civil war. Because Republicans might be for power grab, but what good is it to have power over a country that's in utter chaos? I don't understand that. They, okay, all of that, is, Paul, is, um, yeah, I don't think they will uphold this unbelievably ridiculous theory that has no purchase in America that every conservative jurist says is nonsense. Um, that they do this, there would be the last shred of, well, there is no credibility left on the court, but um, that they would uh, see massive uh, civil disobedience and disrespect. And if, you know, nobody respects the court, uh, it's very dangerous for America with implications that go well beyond elections, uh, but to the fabric of the rule of law in America. I don't think they're that reckless. I do think they are goal oriented and their goal is partisan. 
They're not legit um, as a court, but they, they cannot be so reckless as to destroy the rule of law in America um, for this purpose um, because they will then be presiding over nothing yeah. and no one will care what they have to say. But Edward, overturning Roe in this Dobbs decision has caused reckless. I don't know if you heard about this. Yeah, I think it was in Arkansas this week where a prosecutor subpoenaed Facebook messages between a mother and a daughter where they're talking. Yeah, no, I totally get it. Oh, totally get it. But I think the court was too naive. I don't think they understood. They thought, oh, it's a day, maybe a week long story and it's going to go away. They, they didn't understand they were profoundly affecting the lives of half of America. And that, you know what? This is serious business. It's not going away. And it costs them an election and it's going to cost them a lot more. And they, these guys are I mean, I wish they were legitimate jurists. They're not. They're politicians, and they want they want well, certain okay. goals. Okay. I, They're I, not going to get them this way. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry about the, the, the word naivety. I cut naivete to uh, yeah, people under the age of 30, maybe, or 25, but not to sitting justices of the Supreme Court. I, that's just not good enough. I don't think they expected the pushback they got after Roe. Uh, <laughs> well, after maybe not. They, you know what? They're responsible. You know, we had we had one Supreme Court decision that caused a war. You know, Dred Scott versus Hamilton Dred Scott. A war. <laughs> oh. yeah. Okay, yeah. thank you. Well, thank you as always. Always fun to talk law. Um, Roosevelt, you're next. Double E, Double E, how are you doing today, sir? Thank you. Good. Okay, uh, I want to go back to a little bit about. Uh, uh, the subject of the elections in uh, Georgia. Yes. Now you, have, now you have Hannity and all these idiots on uh, Fox News throwing another lie, another big lie. And that is, you know, they're asking a rhetorical question, you know, you know, who are the ones that, that, that said that they shouldn't vote uh, early or vote by mail. In other words, they're questioning when it was them themselves because of the orange Cheetos said it. So they followed suit. Now they're questioning who's, the one, you know, it's so ridiculous. I mean, and here's the thing that I constantly think young people are watching and listening to this garbage. And how, how are they going to learn anything? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, it's lie after lie after lie, and it's just a constant uh, spinning, you know. I don't know how old you are, Roosevelt, but I grew up during the Vietnam War where my government lied and lied and lied and constantly spun, right? I mean, if if you listen to everything that Curtis LeMay said back then, we would have killed every person in Vietnam because every week he would come on with these reports about the, you know, the... The, the casualty reports on our side and on their side, and they were lies, lie after lie after lie. But Americans, you know, don't always buy the lies we're being told. So I, I have more confidence in young people to listen to this and say, well, you know what, I have my own lived experience, and what you're telling me does just does not make any sense. Well, I'm 66, so I think I'm... So you had the same experience. So, so yeah, but but but... But this is beyond because we're in a new era. We're in an era of of, of the internet and, and everything. And and I mean, how 
Do they think that all their followers are stupid? I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm questioning myself. Well, they certainly have treated them that way. Their fundraising emails. I mean, just remember, I'll never get over this one that, you know, that I got. For gosh sakes, I don't want their fundraising, but I got this one from Don Jr. Hey, it's dad's birthday, and he's going to ask me why your name isn't at the top of his birthday card list. And you know what? For 50 bucks, I can make sure you're at the top of the list. So when I talk to him, you know, we can say what a great supporter you are. I mean, they did, yes, they think their folks are idiots and they fleece them. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's so ridiculous. I mean, like I've said this before on the station also, if you would give this to somebody in Hollywood as a script, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they would never put a camera on it. You know what I'm saying? It's so ridiculous. Yeah. And, and I want to touch another subject related to it. And that is Trump. He does everything up front. And do you think that that's the, type of uh, strategy that, that's going to work? Does he think that that's going to work? Meaning because I did it up front, because I took all those boxes and those folders to Mar-a-Lago, nothing's going to happen to me because I was the president and he hangs on to that uh, stupid idea that, uh, that because he was the president, he shouldn't be investigated because the president, he shouldn't be questioned because he was the president and he constantly, this is what boggles my mind, and I'm using uh, Tom's uh, words, boggles my mind, and that is to blame the victim. I, I don't get it. How can you, uh, how, uh, you know, you're asking me how old I am, 66. I've never, I don't know about you, Double E, but I've never met in my life a man, and I put that in quotation marks, a man that whines and plays the victim and constantly, constantly, you know, they're doing it to me. And kind of, I've never, have you ever met anybody like that in your, in your circle of, of friends or relatives? I, he's, the, I, he's the biggest crybaby I know. And yeah, if you're asking I, me, do I think it's going to be like successful? That. No, it's not going to be successful. Remember after, after, um, after he was elected and in, you know, uh, it, there are all kinds of things you can say about that campaign. But after he was elected, he's now lost three elections in a row. He cost the Republicans the House. He cost them the Senate. He cost he lost election. And this last election where we should have seen a Republican wave, we didn't see it because he cost them that, too. So he, he's a loser, loser, loser. And, and he's losing in the courts and he's losing um, uh, in, in the ballot box. And you know what? He's going to be convicted. I hope so. And, and, and I'm going to close it with this. And this constantly thing, uh, you know, as far as the progressives or the Democrats, they point the finger this way and they say, the wolf people. You know, it's you guys. It's you guys that cry all the time, you know. And look at the lady. You mentioned that lady from Arizona. You know, the election is over. But notice what she did. She went to Mar-a-Lago, and that's what she got the idea from the other uh, goofball Trump, you know, as far as uh, contesting the the election that, that you know, well, purpose sakes, it's over, it's done. Yeah, it's ex- it's expensive. This lawsuit, she'll lose again. They'll lose again. And as I say, she'll be sitting in that bar somewhere in Flagstaff 
and nobody's going to pay any attention to her. And she can look in her drink and she can, you know, hear the whispers. Oh, wasn't that, was that, was that who that was? And she can just dry up and be, you know, bitter in her own coffee, but nobody's going to care because we, uh, we are going to move forward. Again, without them. I thank you again, my friend. And uh, all right. I will talk to you next week. Thank you. Earl. Hey, Earl, are you there? I want to thank you for having your guest on today because it reminded an old fogey that sometimes youth and the excitement and energy can do wonders. So I'll be glad to hear the young lady turning the district and uh, need a little bit more of that. But before I jump off, I would just like to caution everybody that money is not going to stop coming after us. If it's not going to be Trump to go throw their um, pennies behind somebody else, they've already got a machine where they can um, dispense lies and disinformation, and they're just going to crank it up again, and they're going to just have another figurehead because they came so close this time that they're going to continue to um, throw money at it and, you know, get the people out there to lie and, you know, tell falsehoods and, uh, you know, it's a sad state of affairs that we have so many white folks in this country who feel uh, put upon, uh, just disgruntled, and they blame people of color and uh, for a lot of the uh, problems that they that they face. And uh, hopefully that uh, somehow we will break through that myth, and I'm going to jump out because maybe you can get one more caller. All right, Earl. Thank, thank you. you so much. And I'll take one more. Let's take Robert. Robert, hey, are you there? Dave. Uh, this is Dave. But, uh, Hello, I'll, Dave. I'll, Hi there. <clears throat> hey. On, uh, you mentioned on Trump, too. Didn't he also uh, say he liked low-information voters? Uh, you know what? I, I, maybe. Who knows? I'm so yeah, over what, hey, what he cares about. <clears throat> what I was mentioned about, though, was now, you know, he's jumping in on this talking about the uh, this uh, Whalen, this Paul Whalen, yeah. And back back when he was kissing Putin's backside, there he never mentioned nothing about it. Even in Helsinki, Putin mentioned something about swapping people, and Trump never never even broached the topic. And Whalen was taken brother, when Putin. Whalen was taken when Trump was president. Exactly. That's what I was getting to. I mean, he yeah. he had from 2018 all the way to 2020 to do something. He did nothing. And his brother even mentioned that Putin or that Trump never even said his name across his lips back when he was in office. And now he said he's, he said his name more now since he was in the news and that, and well, you know, if you look at it this way, why Trump never went before was the fact that, uh, Remember, he had one time said he didn't anybody that was considered that captured as a prisoner and anything as a, a hero. Like yep, he, he didn't John like him. Yeah, yeah, he did. He didn't like captured people. So, yeah. <laughs> but well, uh, that's got to be our last word because we have run out of time. Thank you for calling. All right, Edwin. Yep. yep. To all of you who listened today, I'm very, very appreciative. I will uh, be back again with you next week and uh, hang in there. Lots to do. I'm glad you're doing it. You take care.